Welcome to Trading with Rainer Show, the trading podcast where you'll gain trading insights to level up your trading so you can beat the markets. Let's start boosting your trading knowledge from your friend, Rainer Teal. Hey, hey, what's up, my friend? So just a heads up, today's episode is actually taken from one of my training videos. So let's get started. Hey, hey, what's up, my friend? So today we have Cesar Alvarez on the podcast, baby. So you probably don't know this, but me and Cesar, we go back, you know, quite a few years, right? And he's actually the one who helped me code all of my quantitative trading systems. So clearly, without Cesar, I wouldn't be the trader I am today, okay? And unlike most coders, right, who can only code but can't trade, no, trader is... Uh, sorry, Caesar is on the other end of the spectrum, right? He is someone who has been trading for 20 plus years, right? You know, since the dot-com bubble, the 2008 financial crisis and much more. So he has seen it. He has seen quite a bit, right, in the market. I wanted to say he has seen it all, but no, that won't be accurate. But he has seen, right, quite a bit, right, in the markets, right? So uh, if you want to connect with Caesar, I will put his social media profiles in the description below, right? But moving on, right, here's what you can expect to learn from, you know, uh, my podcast or rather my conversation, right, with Caesar. So first thing first, we talk about, you know, his background, how he got started in trading, which I thought was really interesting. Then he spoke about the trading strategies, right, that work today, meaning uh, at that point in time when we were talking, right, the strategies that he's trading and still working are strategies like the volatility trend trader strategy, which is a strategy that does well when markets are volatility is high. We cover, you know, trend-following breakout strategies. We cover uh, exploding stars, which is a trading strategy where he used to short the markets. And of course, we also talk about mean reversion trading strategies. So, so all these are different strategies that we talk about in today's show. So if you're wondering, you know, you want some new ideas to develop your own strategies, you know, today's show will be a good fit for you, right? Definitely. And of course, right, he also shared, uh, one thing which really caught my attention was, you know, when you can have multiple trading strategies, but sometimes you do not know, right, which strategy has stopped working. And the last thing you want is to trade a strategy that has already stopped working. So he has a very simple but powerful concept that he shared in this conversation that really, you know, you know, surprised me. Yeah. And he also shared you know, how you can actually how you can trade without a stop loss and without blowing up your account. So all this are more, you know, were covered in today's conversation. You know, uh sounds good, then guess what? Go listen to it right now. Okay, welcome, Caesar, to the show. Thank you, Maynard. I'm very honored to be here and talk to you about trading. I'm super happy to have you as well. And maybe a little bit of context, right, for the listeners. So Caesar and I, we are we're kind of like trading buddies, but we've actually met in real life before. I believe you came once to Singapore, right? Uh, yeah, for a holiday. Plus, yeah, 2016, you know, maybe something before like that? COVID. Yeah. That is like seven, eight years already. <laughs> yeah, it's been a while. I I don't remember. Yeah, I think somewhere around. When was it? My one of my uh, oldest son was in college. So correct. It been, no, it couldn't have been twenty sixteen. Twenty eighteen. It was twenty eighteen. Now I know. Possibly because uh, he came for I think uh was it like a six months schooling here? I even yeah, he, your no, son. he came for a semester. Yeah, my son was doing a semester abroad. We came visit, and it's like, of course, I'd done some work for you um, through my consulting business. And it was like, well, you know, whenever I have an opportunity to meet traders, whenever I go traveling around the world, I, you know, definitely. And you know, we had a great time going out to dinner. I met your family, you know, and you met my family. So it was really nice to actually yes. meet in, in real life. 
and to take things a step further, I even brought your son. I think was it Carlos out to to lunch, right? Because while he was in Singapore, oh, no, it was Diego. It was Diego. Oh, Diego. Was okay, sorry, yeah, Diego, Diego was the one that was there. Yes, yeah, yeah. She yeah, took so... out to lunch, which I was grateful for to have a little contact there. Yeah. So there's some background for the listeners. So, so me and Caesar, we know each other for a while. And one thing to to share is that I think as Caesar has mentioned, right, he is the one who actually helped the entire business, right develop the systematic trading system because you know i have the ideas but i just don't have the necessary programming knowledge to do the coding so caesar is the kind of like the man behind the the magic and <laughs> fyi i'm writing a new book and again i'm crediting you you know in the book as well because you're the one who helps me run all this code so i can do all the backtesting and stuff uh, well, th- well thank you but you know so, you're the one that comes up with the good ideas i just <laughs> i just implement those ideas and improve on the ideas you know that's uh that's uh yeah that's what i'm really good at is taking an idea implementing it and make it even better and you know you had some lots of great ideas to, to do and um, code up so thank you for that Caesar. i appreciate it so let's kick things off right Caesar. so I, i'm curious i think last time we spoke i didn't manage to ask you this question i am always wanted to know what kind of you know kid were you like in school what kind of kid was i in school yeah. wow that's the first time i've been asked that question <laughs> in a long time um i was the typical nerdy smart kid um you know i you know, a smart kid, you know, like to do school, like school, like to do schoolwork, loved math. You know, math was my big thing. Uh, math and science was my big thing in elementary and, you know, uh, through high school and all that. Um, did sports also, but, you know, for me, it was, you know, to me, it was always, you know, I was a nerdy kid. I was a geeky kid. Uh, you know, for those of you who are old enough, or actually, no, it's not that even old. You know, you love Dungeons and Dragons, love video games, Atari. Uh, oh, man, I play so much. Um, computer games on Atari. I spent so much time in arcades and stuff like that. That brings back some memories. Arcade, yeah. Arcade is something I think a lot of, I think people this generation don't experience, especially with the rise of mobile gaming and internet. Because arcade yeah. used to have, you know, these huge ass machines, right? And, you know, people like put a 50 cent a dollar and you know, play like the games yeah. you mentioned. <laughs> Nowadays, I think yeah, it's, hardly... I, I, it's really funny because we, uh, Portland, which is a city about three hours away, we, my wife and I went uh, last year and they actually had an arcade there. You know, I had, it's like one of those, I had to go. It's like, oh my goodness, I had all my old games I used to play as a child, you know, as a kid, as a teenager. So it's like, oh my goodness, I felt like a teenager again in there. So that arcade still had all these uh, old school games back then? Yeah, old, yeah, old school games. You know, that's some wow. of the newer stuff, but a lot of it was old school, like Centipede was one of my favorites, Dig Dug, Defender, um, God, what else, Tron. So I mean, for those of you, oh, those of you who are the older, you still arcades, yeah, they had all... A lot of the classics. I was really, it was the kind of place that I figured we'd walk in and we spent 30 seconds in there realizing they had nothing good or we'd have to drag ourselves out. And yeah, my wife and I had to drag ourselves out after a couple of hours. Like, okay, we got to go out and do other stuff. <laughs> couple of hours. I can't imagine what your wife has to, you know, go through. She was sitting there beside you while you play your games away. Oh, no, she she actually liked playing too. So it, ah, she, perfect. she played the games too. Well, yeah. Not as much as I did, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So... From what I'm hearing, you study a lot of, uh, you excel in those uh, mathematical subjects. So I'm guessing that as you progress on to the later part, maybe in uh, high school or university, is that what you major in? Uh, so yeah, so I majored in uh, computer science. So you know, I, through high school, I got a, you know, I got an Apple IIe, started programming, loved programming. So I went to university, studied computer science. Uh, that's, yeah, so that's where I really got into, you know, and that's actually part of the reason why I the part I really like about trading is I like coding. So like coding up strategies is kind of the most fun part for me. Yeah. Do I want to find a strategy that makes money? Of course I do. But the whole process of coding it up, trying to figure out, especially complex strategies are always fun. 
I just, I just really enjoy coding. And so that I went to university, um, with four years there, got my degree. Uh, at that point I was kind of like, didn't know if I want, I didn't know if I wanted to work or continue going on to graduate school. So I decided that I didn't really feel like working and I wanted to go to graduate school. So I got into a grad program to get my doctorate. Uh, after about six months of that, I realized, well, I'm not sure I really like this. Let me try getting a, a real job and see which I, and see if I hate that worse. <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, so I ended up um, finally getting a job with Microsoft um, on the Microsoft Excel team back in the early 90s, you know, before they had years for dates, you know, this was Excel 3 I got in. So I went to Microsoft, started working there and just loved the environment there. It was a great environment at that time. I made so many great friends there. I mean, I'm still friends with a lot of those people who I met back in the early 90s. Uh, you know, that's where, you know, that's where I became a really good coder. Um, you know, so learning from some of the best coders. <laughs> okay, so maybe before we kind of like, we talk about your career, we can just take a step back because I'm also curious to hear like, what do you remember as maybe some of your formative moments when you were younger? Could be your teenage years, you know, or whatsoever. Formative? Mo oh my goodness. Yeah. That's a deep question. I'm not even sure I'm going to answer that one. <sighs> I mean, definitely high on the formative moments, back to what I was saying, getting my first computer, that you know, just discovering the world of computers and programming. I, I would spend hours upon hours every day learning how to program the computer, learning how to break crack actually programs and cheat on program, cheat on games and stuff like that. I mean, that was a highly formative time when I was young. Um, you know, that to me was the biggest thing was getting that computer, getting exposed to computers. Um, you know, that was big for me. Um, and how old were you? Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. How, how old were you when you got that that computer? I was probably sixteen or I'd say sixteen. Okay. Uh, I'm thinking back then the computer must be quite expensive, right? When yes, you were sixteen was, years old. Yeah, it was quite expensive. I'm not sure how my mom afforded it. <laughs> um, I really need to ask her the next time I see her how she. Yes, because it was they were expensive. I mean, hell, it was expensive. It was expensive, and I don't know how she afforded it because you know she was a single mom. We were not, we were not. Uh, I'm not even sure I would call us middle class. You know, maybe mm. lower middle class uh, is where we yeah we were at. Um, so it was definitely a big expense, uh, yeah. you know, and definitely very grateful for her for doing that because, like I said, that was a huge formative mm. experience for me in That's high good. school. There'll be a question to, to ask her when you see her next time. Yes, yes. I have to ask her how she managed to afford it for the computer. So I'm guessing, right, is that once you have your computer, when you learn how to program and code, it's kind of like just trial by fire, trial and error, not like these days you have Khan Academy and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. It, yeah, it was hard to find any documentation, any learn. Like I said, there were no real books out there. You know, there were a few books. There was no internet, you know. People, you know, I hate to sound old, but man, programmers nowadays have it easy. Hell, I, I have it easy. With ChatGPT now, it's like, okay, I can program really quickly and easy on languages I don't even know anything about. Um, but yeah, no, it was, you know, you just, it was hard. I mean, I don't even know how I managed to learn. I mean, I, I had to find some books to learn some of this stuff. But, you know, a lot of this is just trial and error and, you know, trying to figure stuff out. Um, you know, there was no, there weren't any bulletin boards or anything like that, you know. No email or anything like that during those days. 
Yeah, it really reminds me of some of the biographies that I read, like you know, Elon Musk, Bill Gates, when they started, they have their computer. It's all, it's all like trial by fire. There's no book step by step. You know, just kind of play, break some stuff, figure their, their life out and just, just move yeah. on and, you know, wow, yeah, that's, amazing. That's all it was. It's just, you, you play with it, you break it, you figure out how to fix it. Uh, you know, and, you know, there's, like I said, there's no, not much documentation. It was, so yeah, like I said, definitely that's one of the big formative things as, as a high school student for me. Okay, and then, from then on, you know, you got a job at Microsoft. So how did that come about? Was it like just you know, going through the usual interview or was there someone there you yeah, know? Yeah, it was, you? I mean, actually there was a lot of, lot of, I believe, you know, we don't give luck or fate enough uh, proper credit in our lives. Um, so the way, I mean, the story, the way it happened is the day Microsoft came to my university um, to do, they were, you know, during those years, companies would come to university, set up, booth and you'd walk around and you you talk to them um that day happened to be a football game i really wanted to go to and i was like waffling with my roommate guys like i don't want to go to this because i can get dressed up go to campus come back get get you know back into normal clothes and go back to campus to go to a football game and it's like i really don't want to do this and he goes like ah he goes here i'll just drive you he goes i'll drive you drop you off call me i'll pick you up and we'll do it it's like okay fine um and I just happened to really connect with the uh, recruiter there who was actually a developer in Excel. Um, I really ended up connecting really well with him. Um, it actually turned out that, you know, then what happens from there is it's very typical. They, you know, they flew me back out to Microsoft, a round of six, eight interviews with a whole bunch of Microsoft people. Um, bong, well, yeah, I would say I did not do very well in my first person. I was very uh, worried after my first interview because I did not do very well in that question. Um, but after that first one, I'm either, I think I got the gist of what they were asking. My, I loosened up. And after that, I started doing really well in the interviews. So, uh, you know, went through six or eight people. And then, you know, I don't know, shortly thereafter, got a you know job offer from them. Um, so that's, yeah, that's how that all worked out. Um, the good part is, the interesting part is the guy who interviewed me at my university is still a good friend and only lives like uh, two miles from my house. And you know, I see him at least once a month or so. So you said there were like six to eight rounds of interviews. That's a lot, right? Uh, it, it, yes, it's a lot, um, it, but it's really typical. It's still pretty typical nowadays even. Oh. Uh, my son just um, has gone through the interview process you know, with the tech companies and it's, you know, six interviews is not that uncommon. You know, sometimes it's six interviews multiple days which I think is ridiculous. I think, <laughs> I, don't, I think three is enough, in my opinion. If I if I was running a company, I probably would do three. Um, but uh, I don't run. I don't run my own big company. It's just me, myself, and I. <laughs> Maybe I can. These days, they have a lot of options. So you know, let's have filter after filter after filter. You know, but then like in training terms, I have too many filters. You kind of like you know over optimize, and it may not work in in real world. So I'm I'm, yeah. I'm just you know. to me the all all good interview is really good for it. I believe is. Figuring out whether you like the person and figuring out if they're an idiot. Beyond that, it's a, it's a it's a toss up on how good somebody is. I've done lots of interviews. I've done lots of hiring, and it, I've realized you know it's a once you get them inside your your company, it's a toss up how well they work out work out. Huh. All right. And you said that you were doing uh, Excel back in the day. So maybe could could you explain like, what part of what Excel that you were doing back then? Yeah, so uh, I mean, the, for me, it was kind of exciting to get to Excel because I actually was using Excel on um, actually my wife's Mac uh, or my wife to be's Mac at that time. Uh, so I, I was familiar with Excel when I started there. 
but I work on the charting engine. So I work on you know, all the pretty charts uh, that you mm. have in Excel. So that's the part of Excel I worked on. Um, the really funny and interesting part, I guess the, I don't know what the right phrase would be, is I got there, you know, we started doing stuff. And then the Japanese market contacted us. Based, you know, the Japanese people, the Japanese people uh, for Microsoft basically contacted us and said, hey, there's a chart type that the Japanese really like. We would like you to add it to Excel. Guess what it is? Candlestick charts. <laughs> Guess who added candlestick charts to Excel? I added candlestick charts originally to Excel. I hope my code isn't there right now after you know 30 years. But I originally added candlestick charts for the Japanese market. Uh, and the really cool part is, so something that happens at, at Microsoft then was after, you, you know, when you used to ship a product, it was a physical product we used to ship. Not, you know, so we get boxes, you know, there were boxes. We had to go to the stores. People had to buy Excel. You know, you bought this big box. I actually have a, the Japanese version box of Excel sitting right up there on my shelf of, you know, because, you know, because I added, you know, that to them. They sent me that box from Japan saying, here, you, you could, you need to have this box. Oh, so that box is not, I mean, the Japanese candlestick is not on every Excel. It's only for the Japanese version. No, no, it was for every Excel. We added it for every Excel. It's just the Japanese asked us for it, you know, at that time. So in Excel 3, let's see if it says there. I can't tell from here. Yeah, but yeah, it was probably Excel 3 that it got added into. Uh, okay. Maybe Excel 4. So, you know, this is back in probably 91, 92 that Excel finally got candlestick charts. Can I trouble uh, you to show me the, the box? I'm curious. I think the listeners are curious to see how the, the box looks okay, like. Okay, you can wait 30 seconds because it's up high. I need to get a chair, but 30 seconds. No problem. Take your time. Yeah, so this is for the way. Wow. That is, I don't know, ancient. So, I, mean, I don't know if you can see in the back is a whole bunch of that is a huge Japanese box. writing. Yes, yeah, 98,000 uh, yen, I suppose. Yeah, probably, yeah, 98,000 yen. Wow. And this box hey. is heavy. This box is probably five pounds. What do they put the entire manual of Excel inside? It's just yeah, a CD the ROM. Manual, right? Yeah, so oh, there's it's... manuals. There's probably 3.5 uh, floppy disks in here. So, yeah, it's, oh. yeah. Definitely uh, a keeper, yeah? Maybe you can sell for eBay for, I don't know, 50, 50 uh, yeah, higher, no. higher price. Yeah, like, yeah I've got years. a whole, whole <laughs> bunch of old boxes, but this, is, this one's my favorite of all of them. Because it's oh. like, okay, Japanese Excel. And it's blue book. color. I thought Excel had the trademark of green color. Maybe back then it was blue? Uh, no. I don't know. Back then, I'm looking at the other boxes. We had lots of weird colors. icons back then. Okay, okay. Thank you for sharing. I really, you're so insightful. And to know that you were the one who did candlestick shots for Excel. That is... Yeah, it's, it's, wow. always funny. it's funny. Once I got into uh, trading, I realized, wait a second, I did candlestick charts. <laughs> so... I'm guessing right back then when they use CD-ROMs, whenever you guys do a major update, then you guys have to produce a whole new batch of CD-ROMs and then ship it off to all around the world again. That's how it works. Yes, that's how it works. And actually, no, these boxes are 3.5 disks. So they're floppy disks. They're not oh. CD-ROMs. Doesn't floppy disks just have like I think 1.4 megabyte as a capacity? Yeah, oh no, there's probably five, there's probably several in here. So you need to put it one by one to complete the installation. Yeah. <laughs> wow, okay. <laughs> yeah, CD, CD-ROM came after that way. I think you can increase yeah, the size. Yeah, CD-ROMs were probably, when did probably CD-ROM? Probably 95 or so. It's probably when we started using CD-ROMs, is my guess. Somewhere around there. Okay. 95. So how did you then go from, you know, working at Microsoft and then, because if I'm not wrong, you were also working 
for Larry Connors, right, helping him develop his strategy. So how did that transition come about? Yeah, so I left Microsoft in... So I started Microsoft in 1990, and I left it in 1996. Um, the reason I left Microsoft, uh, I didn't actually want to leave Microsoft. I developed uh, tendonitis in both my elbows from working too hard. Uh, what is tendonitis? Hours. What? What is tendonitis? So tendonitis is a pain kind of like right here. Um, and you actually can get it both on the inside and outside. And I actually had it on both inside and outside on both arms. It's sometimes called golfer's elbow and okay. tennis elbow, depending which side of it, uh, whether it's on the inside or outside. So I was spending three hours a day or three times a day, an hour a, day, an hour a time, icing my elbows so I could just work because um, I was just in so much pain. Um, and at that point, my wife and I were starting to think about having kids. And I could not even think about trying to hold a baby because my arms just hurt so much. So uh, I asked for to get like a sabbatical, but because I was not uh, high enough up in the hierarchy yet, um, it got denied. So I ended up just quitting Microsoft. The part that annoyed me was about six months later, they changed the policy such that I wouldn't have had to quit. Um, you know, it's, you know, I left at a, so, you know, I, that's why I left Microsoft is, you know, I was really wanted, you know, I want to heal my, heal my arms. And one of the best ways of doing that is stopping what you're doing and just rest. So I spent basically uh, six to nine months just not using really, not really using a computer, using a computer as little as possible, resting my arms, getting my arms to heal. Um, now they're now they're in what I call remission because I can, if I overdo my martial arts or uh, exercising, uh, weightlifting stuff like that, I can cause it to get get I won't say bad, but to to start to feel a little bit of pain. So that's so that's why I left Microsoft. Uh, so I took six or nine months off. Uh, we had our first child, and then I actually went back to Microsoft as a part time contract uh, back on Excel just working on something else, uh, just working part-time and spent the, about a year there. And that was probably 97 to 98. And then from 98 to 2003, I worked at various small startups part-time, um, mostly part-time, mostly because I started really enjoying part-time work and just also wanted to not work too hard because of my arms. And so I was doing various software startups during that time. Also, you know, after I left Microsoft, I, I was always interested in the stock market. And that's when I started getting into the stock market myself. Um, and it was in, you know, I started trading individual stocks probably in 90, late 97 or so. So I got to believe I was a brilliant trader through 97, 98, 99. Um, got to, you know, I had stocks like JDSU which to some of you old folks would know, or Commerce One. Those were some great trades I had. Um, fortunately, when the bear market hit in 2000, I, I did not lose too much. I did lose some, but it definitely um, you know, impacted me, like a lot of traders who thought they were just great traders, you know, following all these great things straight up. Um, and that time, around that time, is also when I discovered an broker and realized, oh, I can start testing things and testing ideas. And as a computer programmer, an engineer, to me, that's like, oh, this is really what I like. I want to test. Uh, I started testing things and started to realize a lot of things I was reading in magazines and what few websites there existed then um, really didn't test out. I was really quite disappointed that a lot of things I tested 
you know, in the early 2000s was just not working. And then probably, what is it, 99 or so, I started, um, Larry started somewhere around 99. Larry had started uh, tradehard.com, which then he renamed to tradingmarkets.com. I don't remember when he made the name change. But I was kind of like a member of that website. It was a kind of, you know, a whole bunch of traders there giving, you know, giving their trading tips, their trading advice. Um, I bought a couple, you know, I bought one thing from Larry and tested it. It's like, oh, wow, this actually works. Uh, I was like, wow, the first thing that worked. And in 2002, uh, I took a course from Larry. A, um, he was way ahead of it. This is a um, online course that I took. Um, it was a, what was it? Probably, yeah, I'd probably call it a mean reversion strategy. I took the course, really enjoyed it. Of course, I had to make a spreadsheet, you know, of the material he gave me because I love spreadsheets. So when I gave it to Larry. Larry was like, oh, ah, this is really great. And then you know, I said, hey, if you're looking for help, you know, testing ideas or making spreadsheets, you know, I'm here, I'm available. He said, yeah, yes, yes. You know, he was very polite, but, you know, did not wasn't interested. Uh, about six months later, I contacted him and said, hey, you know, just me again. You know, are you interested? He said, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yes, I'll keep you in mind. Six months after that, I contacted him. He goes, oh, we just hired somebody. I'm so sorry. And I was like, ah, man. And then um, sometime in 2003, he then contacts me and says, hey, we've got this strategy we've developed. We need some external verification because we're getting really good numbers. We just want to make sure these numbers are correct. Um, and he hired me. He said, okay. He said, well, we're hired to do this. So I said, I was like, oh, yes, my great, my break into, into all this. So he gives me the project. Um, so I start the project. I send him the first spreadsheet. And I, I made a stupid, stupid mistake that I did not catch on how I computed uh, compounded annual return. It was just the worst mistake. And, you know, he responds back going, this is wrong. There's a mistake here. I looked at it. It's like, oh, crap. I just ruined my chance to break in. So I sent him back an email basically saying, I'm so sorry. You're right. This is a mistake. Here's the corrected version. You know, if you want to fire, you know, if you don't you want me to work for you, that's fine. You don't need to pay me for the work you've done. I've done for you. I just said, yeah. And apparently that email really struck him that I, you know, I owned up my mistake. And the fact that I told him, don't pay me, you know, for the work I'd done. So he said, no, no problem. And then from then on, you know, I slowly started working more and more for him. And within, I don't know, six months or so, year tops, I ended up being the director of research for him. And, you know, then spent 10 years with him. Wow. What a story. What a story of greed, right? You know, being a <laughs> present, right? So you talk about, you know, you're trading the markets or maybe speculating the markets, you know, before the dot-com bubble. I'm curious. How was the markets, you know, back then, right, when you were speculating? And, and now, uh, what do you think is the changes like now? Yeah, I mean, it's really funny. The, the, I'm seeing a lot, I mean, especially in, what, in 2020, we saw, you know, the meme stocks, you know, they started to be very, very familiar on just like the stocks that just go up. But I think the only, the difference in 99 versus like 2020 that I was seeing was 99, it seemed to be much broader set of stocks that were going up. You know, in 2020, it seemed to be a smaller set of stocks. For like 1999, you could basically throw a dart. It wasn't just the meme stocks or just the big cap stocks. It was just all, everything was going up. You know, it didn't matter what it did. As long as the word .com was in, in its name, 
it was going up. Um, so, but you know, the, the, that speculation that just going straight up that thinking that, Oh, I'm a genius because, you know, I happen to be on this meme stock and you know, whatnot to me, it was like, okay, I know exactly how the story is going to end. Yes. Some people may get lucky and get out at the right time, but most of them end up losing a lot of the money that they made. And, you know, if they're, if they're lucky, they break even some of them, you know, some of them end up losing a lot, all their money and then some. Um, but, you know, 99, it, I mean, the other thing it was, you got to remember, the internet was much smaller, much quieter. So information traveled slower. Um, so, you know, you, you, but it was, those, I mean, the, it was an interesting time. It, like I said, you thought you were a trading wizard during those times because it was so easy just to throw a dart and, you know, the stock would go up uh, during that time. Would you say that back then, as information, you know, travels slower. So a lot of these stocks, they have a lot more momentum behind it compared to these days now when information is much faster, you know, the momentum is not as apparent or strong? I think, yeah, I think momentum is nowadays much quicker. So it's quicker to go up and quicker to go down nowadays just because the information just comes out. People, you know, you know, there's more, there's more reasons to sell because there's so many more boards, you know, you got forums, you've got, you know, TV, you got websites, you got YouTube channels, you've got, you know, podcasts, you got all these people telling you either to buy or to sell. It's just so much more information coming at you that I think the reactions are just much, much faster um, nowadays. Got it. And back to Larry, so back then when you're working for him. So I'm assuming that Back then, when he asked you to verify certain projects, he himself has like a team of people helping him to to run the test already. He's just you as a third party, just to make sure right. that the so, numbers yeah, Larry, are aligned. Larry had a a small. I mean, Larry's always had a small team. He's never had a huge team of researchers. I think when I when I came on, I think he had maybe two. I mean, I think it was only two people that were working for him at the time, and I was the third. And you know, like yeah, like I said, I came on. They and this is. This is something that's even common nowadays that I will do is I will go to an external person to verify my strategies. Um, the reason for this is, or it doesn't have to be necessarily be an external person, but it needs to be somebody else who didn't write the original strategy and knows nothing about it, that you can only give them kind of the English rules. And then they go off and do it because this way, the likelihood of them making the same mistake that you may have made is very, very small. Um, uh, not to say it hasn't happened or is not possible, but it is just much less likely to happen. Um, you know, because I have, you know, I will often have clients come to me with incredible look, and I got actually one right now. He's got a strategy that's making 110% a year with a 15% drawdown. I can almost guarantee you he's either looking into the future or he's got some major coding mistake because. Or he's way, way overfit the data. One of those three things, because this is this is like a ten-year back test. This is not like a one-year back test. This is a ten-year back test. And I saw this, and I know when I talk to this client, it's you know, is it possible that he's found some holy grail thing? Yes. Would I bet against him? Yes. I because I, I know whenever <laughs> I get any strategy when I'm testing that looks that. Yeah, half as good as that. If it was 50% return with a 30% drawdown, I'd be thinking, ah, maybe made a mistake. But 110% with a you know 15% drawdown, you yeah, I mean it's this this is the kind of thing that you know I'm gonna tell him, look, 
you, I know you don't want to share your your strategy, but it'd be really good if you found somebody that you trust to do verification. You know, yes, I can do it. And if he doesn't, you know, but it's one of those things. Verification can save you a lot of money and grief. Yeah, and that brings me to my next question is that, you know, people usually when they think, right, they, they found something really good, they have problems sharing the rules with someone else to, to verify. So how, how I mean, what's the, the top process of maybe Larry or even that client of theirs who, who is willing to give you the plain rules and then let you verify? Right. Is there and, like a... Right. I, I mean, first of all, I completely understand not wanting to share the rules. I mean, I mean, nobody wants their trading secret if you found the Holy Grail getting out there. And I completely, you know, I, I completely, completely understand that, you know, my my tranquility trading service where I, I give out black box black box signals for what I trade myself. But I've had people approach me saying, hey, can we I want to buy the rules to the strategy. I tell them no because I don't want my strategy to get out there because if it does get out there, the edge will disappear. So I completely understand this. Now I did get those my strategies verified because I asked somebody I trust and know and worked with for a long time to verify my strategy. Now how does a you know, how to say third person, this person I've told you about, it's, it's, you know, he has to balance. Does he trust, let's say me, you know, I, you know, I've been or somebody else to verify, not steal his idea. Now I've been in the, you know, I've been doing this, you know, I've been doing this for not 20, more than 20 years now. So, you know, at least for, you know, whenever somebody says, Hey, how do I know you're not going to, you know, steal my strategy? I tell him, look, I've been doing this for 20 years. I'm not some fly by night person. I have a reputation out there. If I took your strategy and sold it as mine or did something and gave it out there, it would ruin my reputation. Nobody would give me any more work. My sites, you know, nobody would, you know, I'd get roasted out there. So, you know, for for me, that's how I try to explain it to others. Of This is why you can trust me because the downside for me doing that is just way, way too, too low or sorry, way, way too high. The other thing is, I so I've done, I've done, I've been out on my own for ten years now. Okay, doing testing for people like yourself, Rainer, and and hundreds of other people. And in that time, I think I've only asked once somebody, "Hey, can I take your trading idea? I don't want to take your your system that you had me test. I just want to extend it. I want to go a slightly different area and make it my own." I asked his permission before I, I did it. So even though I have tested hundreds and hundreds of strategies for people, I, 99.9% of the time, I don't, I don't want to trade them for whatever reason. And only one time I even come close, have I even asked, can I take your idea, not necessarily your idea itself, but your idea and extend it to something, you know, I want to put some twists on it to make it different from your idea a little bit and trade that. So, you know, even then, I, I personally don't trade other people's strategies. I mean, I, you've had lots of great strategies I've tested for you, Raynor. Lots and lots of great things. I've, I haven't come to you and asked you, hey, can I trade this? I'm not trading any of your strategies, you know, just because I try to keep that wall there of, you know, that's your IP, that's your idea. Now, do we share, do we have, are there commonalities? Of course, because there's only so many, so many different things that they're out there. There's mean reversion, there's trend falling, there's breakout. So yeah, all our strategies are all somewhat common, you know, even, but, you know, I don't, yeah, I don't yeah. trade other people's strategies. So. For this person, if I was in his shoes, I would find somebody I could trust and say, can you verify this? You know, because if he does have something great, then, you know, somebody else says, yes, this looks good. You know, I'm going to have a call with him 
and basically kind of point out, here's my concerns with your strategy, you know, and, you know, say, look, there's lots of concerns I have. You may have something here, but, you know, here are my concerns. You need to address these if you want to feel comfortable trading this, you know. Um, you know, other thing people sometimes ask, hey, you know, why don't you, you know, somebody can come to me and say, hey, why don't you sign an NDA? Honestly, NDAs are worthless. Um, you don't know when somebody's broken an NDA, quite honestly. Uh, so I find NDAs worthless. Uh, I know Larry Connors probably had people do NDAs, and I know some of our stuff ended up on the internet. So, you know, we don't know who did it, but we don't. once it's out there, it's too late. Now your edge is disappearing. Um, so I think you got to find somebody you trust to do some verification. So earlier you, you mentioned, right, that you don't want to give out the rules of, I think, the, the signals that you have, I think, on tranquility and, and I can understand it because the edge might be eroded. So like maybe certain markets where the market is so huge, I don't know, Russell 500 stocks, I mean, S&P 500, Russell 1000, those huge markets, will the edge still kind of be affected if, if like... Oh yeah, I mean, it, I mean, definitely depending on the strategy and depending it, on the liquidity on the stock. I mean, some of the stocks... Um, can have very low liquidity or not even that low but i mean if you do the math sometimes you figure out i let's say let's say you only have 100 subscribers okay and let's say each subscriber is only trading ten thousand dollars okay let's do this let's do this some math here um so that you know these are very small accounts so 100 subscribe very small you know service 100 subscribers ten thousand dollars very small amount and let's say you're doing five positions. So you're doing $2,000 per position. So if yeah. you times that by 100, 100 that's $200,000. Now, dropping $200,000, now if you've got, let's say a stock only has a liquidity of a million dollars a day. Okay. Yeah, that's, a fifth of the, that's a fifth of the volume. That's a problem. You can't, you can't put that much. And that's a small amount. You know, God forbid if you've got, you know, either large accounts or, you know, a large service. Um, so, you know, you have, to, so this is something you have to be careful with just in itself on services themselves. Of how big are they? You know, something I do is I, I do not want to grow my service big. Um, what I love to from the money point, from bringing in the money for my services. Yes. But again, I want to keep my edge and that's something, you know, I don't want my service to get too big. I don't want my rules to get out because I want, I trade those strategies and I want to keep my edge there. Got it. Okay. So since we're on the topic of strategy, let's talk about, you know, what's your trading approach then, you know, for the listeners to know. So my, so my, I mean, as, as, as a lot of people, you know, I've been doing this a long time. We've been doing trading 20 years systematically and it's definitely has evolved through the years. I mean, uh, because I started working for Larry, I was mean reversion guy, you know, for the first probably eight years. That's all I traded. It was just mean reversion, mean reversion, mean reversion. Um, one of the main reasons was it worked really, really well back in the, uh, 2003, 2005, even through 2008. Oh my God. Um, getting 10, 20, 30% winners was not uncommon. Seeing my account going up or down 5% in a day was very, very normal. Um, those, I mean, those were great trading days because we were early. This was the early time frame for mean reversion trading and the edges were still huge. People weren't there, you know, even though we were publishing a lot about this, there just weren't a lot of people trading this at the time. And, you know, especially like I said, 2003, four and five. Oh my God, those edges were huge then. Um, so that's all I did for a, 
probably the first eight years of my trading career. Um, then, you know, for me, I think the next step up, you know, I was all mean reversion on the long side. Um, I don't remember exactly when, but eventually I started doing shorting, uh, which I found out the edges are, something I've come to realize in shorting is the edges are, are stickier there because it's hard to short emotionally. And there are lots of issues with shorting, just trying to find shares to short, getting partial fills, um, just, just shorting just a lot more scarier also. I mean, I've had short positions where I've woken up and looked at it and it's up 100%. And trust me, when you're in a short position and it's up 100%, life is not good. Um, and it's not easy to trade a system that can have those kind of losers. Um, so, you know, so next from Indomexa Evolution was going from long only mean reversion to short mean, re mean reversion. Um, then, you know, in 2013, I left Larry at, to go out on my own. Um, at that point, I really started to branch out more. I started researching more. I, I added um, a, a kind of a breakout method, you know, so I've added breakout methods. I've added trend following methods to my, my strategy. Now I'm still trading stocks only. Uh, I haven't gotten into futures. Uh, I haven't gotten into options. Even though I've done lots of options testing, I still haven't, I, I get tempted by options, but I still haven't really pulled the trigger on options. Um, you know, Forex, none of that stuff. So for me, what's happened is I've expanded the range of strat types of strategies. Like I said, I've got mean reversion strategies on the long and short side. I've got breakouts. I got trend following. I got volatility ETF strategy, which, oh man, that's, I've just been loving that strategy the last several years. That strategy's been doing great. Um, so what I, the way I've evolved is by adding more strategies into my trading stable, or not more strategies, more types of strategies is a better way of putting it. You know, I think it's bad if you have, you know, I, I, I've, this used to be me, is I'd have, I'd be trading four different mean reversion strategies. And quite honestly, that's really just one. They all trade exactly, they all trigger at the same time. They all go up the same. So it's like, you know what? That's not, that's not diversification. You're just fooling yourself when you, you, you think that's diversification. That's really not diversifying away. Um, so, you know, that understanding that how, powerful the diversification of strategies really helps when you put them all together how much smoother that makes your equity curve how much better things get overall versus when you just trade one strategy or two strategies so that for me has been the big overarching arch of my trading career over the last 10 years is just trying you know trying to find different strategies that are, that are not highly correlated so am i right to say that the the uh the site the tranquility trading right those strategies that you sh you you offer those are the ones that you are currently active trading those those i think it's four or five yeah, so, you have yeah. a... so i trade those strategies plus i trade other strategies which i don't put up on the site um reason i don't put them up for the site is they are they tend to be very low liquidity so you know i trade some very low liquidity stuff that um could not even handle you know 10 new subscribers kind of thing you know so that's why i don't put it up there so i have i've Strategies that I have on Tranquility Trading that I trade, and I have my own strategies that aren't published anywhere that I trade. So these, I have about, I think about 10, I have about 10 strategies in my trading stable. Um, okay. And the way I do this is, so every quarter what I do is I take those 10 strategies, I run them through kind of like a momentum filter, and I pick the four, 
five, sorry, five best, four best, five, five, five best strategies through my momentum filter. And I trade those for the next quarter. So th that's kind of what I do. It's kind of my rotating amongst my strongest strategies. I see. And uh, the weightage to each strategy, do you like allocate same amount of money or? Yep, 20% yes. each, 20, 20, 20, 20. Okay. Um, yeah. So yeah, I mean, that's, now that you've brought it up, you know, position sizing, I've read a lots of different types of position sizing, you know, you, there's like, oh, inverse volatility, risk parity, Kelly formula. And what I've discovered at the end of the day is some of them may be slightly better, but doing equal position sizing does just as good 90% of the time it is way easier and wait. And I always, I tend to be simple. If, if, I always go for the simpler. If I make, if I add complexity, it better give me a lot of bang for the buck. If it doesn't, it's like, it's not worth it in my book. So it's like, so that's why I keep my position sizing, you know, my individual trading strategies, even though if I have 10 positions, it's 10% each. You know, uh, I've tested all, you know, I've tested all the different types of other position sizing and I always come back to the very simple. It's just 10% each. Nothing seems to buy me that much more for the complexity. Right. So maybe let's dive a little bit deeper on the... Uh... On mean reversion trading, let's talk a little bit about that. So because you mentioned you've been trading that for like a good eight years, right? Is there a reason why Larry is, uh, I'm guessing, does he still trade mean reversion today? Um, I honestly, I mean, I talk to Larry maybe once a year now. So I don't know what he's trading nowadays. I think okay. I think he's really into, um, from last time I talked to him, I think he's really into zero day options. Zero, so I think he's really trading. That's what his big thing is now. Um, and I have no idea but, what zero-day option is. <laughs> so zero-day options is basically options that, ex that you can buy and expires on the same day. Um, uh -huh, okay. So that, that's zero-day options on the, uh, like on the SPY and the SPX. It's really, really popular right now. Uh, my trading buddy, Stephen Gabriel, loves to trade them. I've got a couple clients of mine who just love trading them. Um, I've looked into it. It's just way too much work. You've got to follow the markets during the day. I don't like following the markets during the day. Uh, so, but that, you know, that's, I know what, that's what Larry is doing now, but you know, back, back when I started working for Larry, mean reversion was just, that happened to be his thing, you know, and that, and we were just finding lots of different ways to slice mean reversion at that time. Um, that, you know, that's why we kind of, I stayed there, you know, originally when we started, when I started working from the mean reversion was always entry at the close or at the open. And entry then, the you know, open. okay. Yes. And then we figured out doing limits um and you know how you know then that added a whole new world to us and you know using limits to do things um and also during that time we were also discovering different ways of ranking um of ranking signals we were discovering different ways of adding new filters beyond you know simple rsi but other filters that really added things to the thing so uh, it was not necessarily we were on a continuous improvement of mean reversion strategies it wasn't kind of like we're reinventing the same strategy over and over again. It was just, we kept getting each strategy better and better. We we're finding different ways of getting things better and better through about, you know, those eight years or so of doing that. And would, would, I, would I be right to say that instead of maybe trying to, to refine or to make that strategy even better, it was going to be like a lot more worth it in terms of ROI to actually adopt another strategy that is nothing to do with mini revision with based on different principles so you get the kind yes. of diversification yeah, I mean, yeah now i mean yes now yeah 
now I would say what we were doing back then, we should have tried harder to find breakouts, trend falling or whatnot. Um, but again, you got to remember back then, this was all new. You know, there wasn't a whole bunch of information out there on mean reversion. So we were in the forefront of kind of promoting that, that mean reversion um, strategies. And like I said, we were still finding improvements on it. So it wasn't like we were taking, oh, let's take this strategy that works on the S&P 500 and make it work on the NASDAQ 100, same rules. No, we were like, oh, we take this strategy on the S&P 500 and we add this new rule or we do something else. Now, oh, look, our results get better. So we were like continually figuring things out, how to make things better for the longest time. I know that, you know, uh, you and Larry wrote a few books. So I'm curious to hear, you know, what's the incentive, you know, behind promoting mean reversion trading? Because, you know, if, if too many people learn of it, then that's where your age get eroded. So what's the, the mindset behind that? Yeah, so this is, yeah, you're asking me now to get into the mindset of Larry here. So I, I, this is pure oh, okay. speculation. Okay. But I mean, I mean, Larry was, you know, was, isn't, was at that time an educator. So he liked putting out strategies out there to educate people. Um, and at that time, things didn't, I guess, information didn't travel as fast. Um, so you could put the rule, you know, and I, and I, I believe this at the time, you could put the rules out there. And, and this is true even now. I could probably put the rules out there for a lot of strategies. And most people won't follow the rules just because it's hard to follow. A, a, following a strategy is hard. And just, you know, first drawdown or first minor drawdown, most people will bail. I can tell you that right now. But the problem is back then versus now is back then systematic trading was not that well known. So there weren't as many systematic traders. So, you know, we could publish the rules and it was a smaller universe and even smaller for the people who actually follow the rules. Now, if we'd published a rule set, there are so many systematic traders. The universe is so much bigger and the information is so much wider that we would destroy the tray, the edges, in my opinion, right away nowadays. Versus then, we had years before the edges would potentially disappear kind of thing. Um, now, you know, I bet you, you put out a good strategy, you probably have months and the edge would disappear. <laughs> okay. Uh, maybe let, now let's kind of like go to an overview of, you know, some of the trading strategies that you have on on, on, thing, on, your, on your website. So we have, I think, I think one I saw was the uh, exploding star. Sounds really boom, exciting or exploding. So maybe and without giving your rules, maybe just get a high level overview of, you know, what exploding stars is about. Yeah. You know? So yeah, I mean, exploding stars is a, uh, a short strategy. Uh, it is, and this is a very narrow short strategy. This strategy is, it only goes short when the market is under the 200 day moving average. Um, the reason for that is you tend to have less frequent, uh, blowups when the, when the market is under the 200. So you're less likely to wake up and see a stock up hundred percent. Because um, it's not the so end uptrend. Yeah. Yeah. So it is basically a very, what I would say a very strong mean version strategy. I mean, you look at the chart of a typical setup and it's going straight up and then you are getting in at a very high limit intraday. So it is, if you look at the charts, you would kind of, and, I, and even I do this, is I would go, why am I shorting the stock? It is going straight to the moon. Why am I putting my face straight into the fire? But there's a point where things just have to pull back. And you know, it's just looking for quick pullbacks. Um, and it works quite well during bear markets. Um, the problem is I can make the strategy work during bull markets and I don't have it that way there, but I do have it in my own personal trading because in bull markets, the drawdowns are much worse. 
and you find those 100% losers happen then. And I just don't want anybody, not that I can guarantee it, but I can at least make it less likely that it happens, you know, when it's under 200, just a lot less likely to happen. Because, you know, like I said, waking up to when a stock's up 100% or even 50% just really, really sucks. And, you know, and this is something that took me a while to figure out for shorting is my position sizing was too big. I realized after one of my 100% losers that my brain just shut down. You know, my brain was just like, I, I don't know what to do. It's like, what do I do? You know, I didn't want to, I just like, do I still follow my rules? Do I just get out? What do I do? I realized at that point, my position sizing was too big and I had to reduce the position sizing small enough such that, and I, you know, I mentally went through that kind of an exercise and said, okay, if my position size is, let's say $10,000 per, per stock, and I wake up and it's up and it's, you know, it's doubled and now it's $20,000. That means I got a $10,000 loss and potentially getting bigger. Can, can I still function? If the answer is no, then it's like, okay, go smaller. And it's like, okay, and I did this kind of mental exercise and I said, okay, I think at $8,000, I'd be okay. And then I know, okay, I know that's the edge. So let me just make it $7,000. And now I've got a little buffer. And this is kind of what I realized when I started doing shorting was, you know, you got to, you got to mentally prepare for these huge losses and understand if it happens, can I still function? Can I still come? Can I still follow my rules? Because that's one of the hard parts of any strategy is usually when you stop following the rules is the worst time to stop following the rules. Uh, Rainer, you're probably quite familiar with this. You've probably done it. I mean, we've all done it. I mean, I still every now and then do it. We find a great excuse to stop following, following the rules. And sure enough, it was the wrong time to stop following the rules. Uh, so yes, yeah, so that's, that exploding stars, like I said, it's a very strong mean reversion strategy. Right now, you know, because we've been such strong bull market, it's been sitting in cash, uh, you know, which is fine. It's just a, it's just sitting there for when the next bull market happens. Uh, granted, they don't seem to happen very often, and they're very short nowadays. It seems like, um, but yeah, it's it's there waiting on the sidelines. Got it. So that strategy, I guess, is also a swing trade. He holds trades for a few days rather yeah, than few days. yeah, very very short hold, very a few days. Uh, yeah, basically, it's just looking for, you know, the stock going up and just come, you know, come down a little bit. Get, the way I put it is give me any excuse to get out of the position. You know, that's the way I look at, you know, if you've made me a little bit of money, okay, I'm getting out. I'm getting out. Usually, because usually when they come back, they come back really strongly. So um, it works quite well. I can imagine how scary it is when you're like those 100% move multiple days in a row. God, oh, yeah, I know. No, they're scary. If I showed you oh. some of the charts of the setup, Gosh. you would go... There's no way I'm shorting this. I mean, 99%. And this is why I love shorts, shorting strategies. Because if you show the chart to anybody and say, okay, would you short this? Most people go, no way. You're crazy. And this is why, you know, the edges are still existing much stronger there than on the long side. Dude. Um, but they're hard to trade. You know, I do, do not recommend it for most people. So would you say then that there's a correlation between how strong an edge is, is a function of how as a function of, of how uncomfortable it is to take the trade. Yes, I, I believe so. Um, I believe that is a really great statement. Now, how hard is it to stay, either get into the trade or stay in the trade? You know, you know, it's easy. You know, for me, trend following, in a sense, is easy, especially if they're going up. Anybody can stay in a trade that's going up and not making you money. Yeah, that, that's easy. You know, um, but, you know, a trade that's going against you and you have to get into it or stay in it, um, you know, that, that tends to be hard. Like you said, the harder it is to stay in a trade, follow the rules, the more like, you know, and this is more a conceptual thing, like you said, you know, I think mean reversion tends to be harder to trade than trend following. 
Breakout, I think, can be kind of hard to trade um, depending on the person. Because, you know, breakouts is kind of like, wait, it's just making a new hot. Do I, I, don't, I, want, I don't want to pay that much, you know, because it was lower. So I can see breakouts being hard to get into. Um, but, necess- but once you're in a breakout, I think they're a little bit easier. Uh, but mean reversion, you know, usually a mean reversion trade, it's going down. You're getting into it. It usually goes down another day or two before it finally decides to bounce up. I mean, as you're aware, because you, I, I know you have some mean reversion strategies. So they can be a little bit harder to trade. But yeah. um, unfortunately, not hard enough because the edges have definitely gotten smaller over the years. Um, okay, maybe just to help the audience visualize. So what exactly is mean reversion trading? So everyone is on the same page over here. Right. So mean reversion trade. So imagine a stock has been going up for um, lots of days in a row and then it goes down, let's say, two or three days. So it's kind of like what we'd call a pullback. And that's a mean reversion. It's kind of like bounce back. And by mean reversion, we mean it's going to go back to where it was going back at that uptrend. So we're kind of saying it's gone down, it's pulled away from, let's say, it's moving average, and we think it's going to go back up. So on a mean reversion trade, usually what we say is like, okay, it's gone down three days in a row. Okay, I'm going to get in now. And then I'm going to wait till it bounces back up. And then I'm going to get out when it bounces back up. One very common thing I, I had, I've had through the years, and it's been a while since anybody's asked me this question, it's like, okay. You've got a mean reversion trade. Why don't I just wait for confirmation that's going up? So let's say it breaks the high the previous day. The problem with doing that is it destroys like 80% of your edge or 90% of your edge. And a strategy that looks also really good now is like hardly makes any money. So waiting for that confirmation destroys the edge. So you can't wait for the confirmation. You have to kind of like take it on faith that it's going to bounce up. And unfortunately, sometimes they don't bounce up. Sometimes they keep going down, down, down. Um, and that's what's what makes mean inversion difficult is because the second part is stops. You know, we're all, you know, we always read, oh, put stops in. You need to have stops. You need to have stops. Um, I, and this is, I remember this story greatly when I started working with Larry. We were doing some mean reversion testing. He goes, okay, we need to put stops. You know, I got to tell, you know, we always have to have stops. You need to have a stop in. And, you know, he, I, and he said, okay, why don't you just test, I don't remember, 5% stop. I said, okay, I'll test 5% stop. So I went and started testing. I tested a 5% stop and I saw the results. I said, well, let me try a 6%. The results got better. 7%. It's like, oh, this is kind of weird. The results keep getting it. Let me try 10%. Wow, the results are still better. Let me try 20%. The results are still better. Let me try a 50% stop. The results are still better. And I realized, let me try no stop. And the no stop here, and I remember coming back to Larry. I go, Larry, you're not going to believe this. No stop gives the best results of all. And it was like, what? And that is one of the hard parts of mean reversion is in not in theory. In practice, having no stop works the best. Now, I will come back and say, for my own trading strategy, I actually have, um, I have two types of stops. I have a fifty percent stop loss, and I have a time stop in my trading strategies. Um, and, and time stop, I think, is like eight days. So if it, after eight days, it's not gotten to my exit. Usually, that means it's bounced up, or it's not hit my fifty percent loss. I'm just getting out. The reason for those two are. They have minimal impact on the results. I mean, they make the results worse, but not greatly worse. But most importantly, it makes it easier for me to continue to trade the strategy. So if I'm in a 50% loser, I just don't want to see it in my account anymore. So just selling it, getting out of my account makes me feel better, makes me trade, continue to trade the strategy. And if I'm in the position eight days later and it hasn't bounced up and it's just going sideways, you know what? Just get out of the account. Maybe put something else that might work better that will make me, again, these two rules. Make this make my car and MDD a little bit worse. Not a lot, but just a little. 
but make it much, much greater than I will continue to trade the strategy. And that's the most important part. That's one of the biggest lessons I've learned through the years is you got to keep trading the strategy. When things are going bad, things are going poorly, it's usually the hardest time. You know, it's easy to keep following a strategy when you're making money. It's hard to follow a strategy when you either have bad trades or you're losing money and anything you can do to make that easier is important in my book. And those two rules make it easier to trade my mean reversion strategy and they're added there just for that, even though they make the results a little bit worse. What you shared earlier is just, just beautiful and I'm so happy right, to actually learn from you because I, think, I believe you were the one who kind of exposed my eyes to you know, having no stop loss in the stock markets, right? It's actually better overall, but we still have risk management in place and then you talk about the right. time-based stop right. loss. And yeah, the risk management is done by position sizing itself. It's like, okay, how big are my positions in this strategy? And understanding, okay, yes, I may end up, you know, thankfully on the long side, the worst you can do is a, is a 100% Zero, loss. Yeah. You know, I, but you know, I think my worst long size strategy is maybe like a 75% loss. Um, you know, it sucks. Um, they're, they're pretty infrequent. Um, but, you know, again, let me just say this. This doesn't mean my other strategies don't have stops. Yes, my breakout strategies have stops. My trend following strategy has a stop. So, yeah, it all depends on the strategy whether having a stop makes sense or not. And it's understanding, you know, and if you tell, you know, I've had people come to me, I need to have a stop. It's like, fine, okay, understand. You know, if you've got a meme origin strategy and you need to have a stop, understand what you're giving up. As long as you understand your results are worse and how much worse they are, that's fine. Because if you need that to continue to work, to trade the strategy or for whatever position sizing method you're using, then that makes sense. So earlier, I heard you say breakout and, and trend following strategies. Are they like two different strategies? Or because they sound so similar, like trend following and, and breakout? Or how does yeah, that they're similar-ish, but I, I guess I would call the, my breakout more breakout momentum. They're similar, but not, in my books, they're not quite the same. Um, Could you expand? I mean, breakout to me is it is actually making a new high, a new yearly high, a new all time high. You know, I've got one strategy that was doing yeah, all time high. I've got another strategy that's doing, um, I think, yearly high. So those are, to me, that's a breakout when it's actually doing that. A momentum strategy or a trend following strategy, to me, is just above the moving average. It doesn't have to be making like some all-time high or a yearly high or anything like that. And the charts look different to me. When I look at the charts, they look different. And also the way you play the exits for myself between a breakout strategy and a trend following also tend to be also a little bit different. Um, so to me, they're, they're, they're very similar, but to me, they're actually two different types of strategies. Okay, so maybe on the exits, uh, do they both use trailing stop loss or one maybe have a trailing stop loss and maybe one is a fixed target or something? Right. No. Um, yes, exactly. So my uh, breakout sh- or my... I gotta, so here's the bad part. Because I'm a systematic trader and because after I, I'm fully systematic, I often forget the exact rules of my strategies. So, I, you know, you I can, can put a gun it. to my head and say, hey, give me the name, of the, give me the rules of that strategy. And I'd say, well, you're going to have to pull that trigger because I don't remember the rules. I can tell you the general concept, but the exact rules, I have no idea. And it's not because they're complex strategies. It's just because after There's I code them up and I've got them running, it's, you know, it's been years since I've had to look at the rules, you know. So I was like, so I was like, so I hopefully I'm getting this right. So, but. My breakout strategy has both a profit target and a stop loss. So, and they're fixed. And it's got a profit target, a stop loss, and a time stop. Because usually I find for those, the momentum usually continues and tends to be really, tends to be strong. 
Um, now, the profit target is pretty high at, I think, 50% or 75%, somewhere up there. Uh, so it's a pretty high profit target. And the stop loss is, I think, around 10 or 15%. So it's a, it's a pretty wide range. Uh, but there is a kind of a time stop to say, look, it's got to get to one of these within six months or so. If not, then, you know, rotate into something else that's moving kind of thing. Because I kind of expect the momentum, you know, I expect the breakout to happen and the momentum to continue and really get up to my profit target. Um, so that is the, uh, the, the, the breakout, the trend following. Um, God, how's this? I also have a profit target on that. I tend to like to have profit targets. Uh, you know, but, but again, also somewhere around 50, 75%, somewhere around there. And that one tends to have, um, that one's got a kind of a trailing stop behind it. Um, so okay. that's, you know, that's kind of the difference on those there. So I'd like to hear on your opinion, because when having like stops and targets that are of certain fixed percentage and you decided to use this for the foreseeable future, that percentage, I mean, there's so many range of numbers that you can choose. So how do you kind of like go about deciding, you know, I decided to go with 50%. Uh, target and maybe twenty percent, you know, stop loss. You don't want to over optimize the best number. So, what's your? Right. How do you go about choosing? Right. So the so the, we'll start with the stop loss. The stop loss usually tends to be in the ten to twenty percent range, just because on a breakout or a trend following stock, you usually don't want them to pull back right away, and that tends to be that tends to be pretty fixed in the ten to twenty percent range. My now something that um. I, I always have a profit target on these longer term ones. And let me explain first why I have these profit targets. The reason I have this profit target is cases like Tesla, Apple, NVIDIA. The problem is if you do a back test, if you don't have a profit target and you just kind of say, oh, I'm going to have a trailing stop or I've got some other rule. These positions, if you get into Apple or Tesla or NVIDIA at the right time, they can grow to be very large part of your portfolio such that the reason why your strategy did so well is because you got into just that one stock and picked it that, you know, got it at the right time. And I don't like that. I don't like, I don't like a back test that depends on one stock or depends on when I started. Cause if I started this, let's say the strategy a year earlier, I didn't get into NVIDIA for whatever reason, cause I didn't have open positions and now my strategy didn't do well. So what happens is if I have like a 75% or hundred percent profit target, and this is, let's say I get into, you know, Apple, it, it gets to my 100% stop loss, uh, profit target. So what would happen often is I exit it, and then often it ends up being a new re-entry really quickly thereafter. So in a sense, I've resized it back down to a smaller size, such that it's not taking up such a huge amount, and now it can keep, it can keep growing. So that's just kind of why I always have a profit target, is I'm trying to avoid a position becoming so big. So now, how big do you want it? Between 15 and 100% is kind of like what my normal amount is. I say normally, it's, it's normally around 75%. It's kind of 75 to 100 is kind of where I say, okay, that's gotten big enough. Yeah, because you know you got to remember, at 100%, let's say you're doing a, a, a portfolio of, you know, you've got $100,000, you're doing $10,000 per position for 10 positions, and you get started and you get $10,000 in Apple and $10,000 in something else. Apple doubles, okay? So it's now twenty thousand dollars. It's it's now become twice as big as any other new position, basically that you're putting on. And that, to me, I don't like that much concentration in one stock. So this is kind of why I'm doing that. Does that all make sense, Rainer? Yep, it all makes sense. 
Uh, and also, maybe just take, take a step back and you know, going back to mean reversion trading, I've been wanting to ask, right, what markets, based on your, I think, your research, right, what, which markets are good for mean reversion trading and then which markets are not good for mean reversion trading? Uh, by markets, I'm not sure what you mean by markets. Do you mean like Forex, uh, futures, or do you mean, I, what do you mean by markets? Okay, so from what I've gathered so far, right, a mean reversion trading works best in the US stock markets, right? I think yeah. because it's more efficient back there. If you apply yeah. it on markets, like, I don't know, more trending markets, like maybe the China A50 and stuff like that, it probably so, w- won't work. Um, actually, from my from work I did with Larry and little work I've done with what I did I can get is, I believe mean reversion is stronger and better in outside the US. Oh. So Australian markets... Canadian markets. Um, now, part of the problem, you know, I was I've been doing some testing on the Canadian markets, and definitely mean reversion is working really well there. The problem with the Canadian market is there's there's not enough stocks to get you enough trades to make it worthwhile. Does that make sense? So I'm just not. There's just not the market itself is not big enough, or the universe is not big enough to give me enough trades to make a portfolio worthwhile. Now, the individual trades that you can get are really good. You're just not getting enough of them. Okay. You know? And what uh, about Australia? Uh, I have not tested Australia, but my bet is, from what I've heard from other people, there's an Australian market um, is pretty good from the mean reversion. So okay. you know, I believe, you know, it's, I believe the foreign markets are probably really good still for the mean reversion. Um, part of the also, there's two reasons. is There's less people trading them. And their liquidity tends to be less. And this is true in the U.S. market. The lower liquidity stocks tend to have better, larger edges in them because the big players can't trade those stocks because they're, they, they move them. And, you know, or they're, even if they did, they have to take such a small position size that, you know, it's not going to make much difference. You know, it's not going to help them that much. Um, so, yeah, so that, you know, this is, I think, you know, especially for your international viewers that, you know, look at their own markets. You know, part of the problem is for me is getting data that I would trust and, you know, uh, and, you you know, be comfortable testing with. Right now, you know, it's the only data that I trust that we can use I can get is for the Canadian, U.S. and the Australian market. I, um, I guess I need to see how hard it'd be to trade the Australian market. Part of the problem with the Australian market is also ours. Um, hmm. Canadian market's kind of nice because it's on the U.S. hours kind of thing. Um, Australian market just would make it, you know, I'm lazy at the end of the day. And, uh, you know, it's like, oh, don't make me wake up at some weird time or don't make me have to look at the markets at some time. I don't want to. Um, what about mean reversion trading, let's say, on the Forex or futures market? Um, I, I've i tried it on the Forex markets that have yet to see it work. Uh, I've seen it work on the, on the uh, on futures markets. Uh, in the past, you know, I, I honestly, I've not done uh, much testing on my own on the futures markets because I just don't trade futures. I, I've done some testing for clients on the futures and uh, it seems like it does, it can work on there. It's a little bit different. You know, in the futures market, you definitely have a lot more complexity because of position sizing and the leverage and stuff like that, um, which can also help you out a lot. All right. So now let's move on and, you know, talk about Another strategy, I think, on tranquility, you have another one called the uh, volatility trend traders, if I got the name uh, correctly. Yeah, this yes. one you spoke about earlier, right? Maybe a high-level overview of you know, what that is about. Yes. So this is this is one of my favorite strategies because it's so different. So first of all, it's trading basically 
Uh, VIXI and SVIXI. So VIXI is the long VIX um, ETF. And SVIXI, so the long 1X ETF. And SVIXI is the short VIX half half size. So half size or half volatility. Um, so it's trading just those two. Um, and it's basically trying to find, it basically, it's looking at when it thinks volatility will be staying low. So when it thinks volatility is going to be staying low, it goes into SVIXI or, or collapsing down. So SVIXI basically makes money when volatility is flat or volatility is going down. Um, and then, you know, so think of it, you know, the way, easy way to think about it is when we're in a nice quiet bull market like we are now is a great is low volatility. Um, or when we've come off a very huge spike, you know, the markets have gone down a whole bunch of days in a row. It's, you know, bad news. Market's been down for a month, whatever. Usually then the VIX goes up and then eventually the VIX will start to, you know, volatility starts to come back down to normal. And that's also another good time to get into SVIX. Um, so most of the time, the strategy is in something like that. So the good part about this is you can be an SVIXI and the markets can be flat and you'll be making money because um, SVIXI also kind of uh, erodes over time. So this is really nice on that feature. VIXI now is every now and then it, when we think the markets are starting to get volatile or the markets are starting to get volatile, we get into VIXI. And that is, okay, markets are getting volatile. And, you know, markets are usually collapsing. So the VIXI is going up and we time it right. Markets collapse. We're in VIXI. So that means that makes money during, you know, market collapses, hopefully. Um, so, yeah, basically, I'm trying to judge which volatility regime we're in. Most of the time, we're in, you know, a what I view as a, you know, a quiet volatility or down volatility. And every now and then, I'll be getting, I'll get mixed signals because it, it takes a couple things into account. And I'll be sitting in cash when it's kind of like... Uh, I can't make up my mind which one to be in, so I'll just decide to be in nothing. Uh, it's done last year. It did fifty-one percent, fifty percent last year. Um, wow! So you know, and it, it, it didn't do it all at the end. It was pretty consistent. Um, the year before, I don't even know what it did the year before, but I think it was. I mean, it's had some really great years um, since I've been trading it the last couple of years. Um, yeah, and, and it could be, you know, but it's definitely a much higher risk. Um, Kind of, you know, definitely not something I recommend for beginners or even immediate people. But this is, you have to understand, um, you know, the volatility ETFs have had their issues in the past. Um, for those of you who have been around long enough, you may remember XIV. Um, it imploded, got 2018, I think it was, when yeah, it you know, went down 80 or 90% uh, in a day. Uh, basically, in, you know, so, you know, it basically, you know, almost went to zero almost instantaneously. And, you know, part of the reason now why SVIXI, now XIV was a 1X uh, short. Part of the reason why SVIXI, XVIXI at the time, existed at the time, but didn't collapse, or did collapse, but didn't go out of business uh, or didn't get closed down. They converted to a half X in order to avoid that kind of situation. So, but you can still have a huge moves in that, you know, in that, you know, if the markets suddenly, you know, shoot up, I mean, if, if you know, let's say a really bad event it happened in the stock market and, you know, the stock market suddenly collapsed and you were in SVIXI, you could easily lose, you know, 50% of your position, you know, overnight. So, you know, that can happen. Now, VIXI, which is the long volatility, I don't know what the biggest one-day move is on VIXI, but it, I can't imagine it's more than 10 or 20%. Um, you know, still a very large amount. 
but it's not the kind of thing, you know, markets, in order for Vixie to collapse down, volatility has to drop all, all of a sudden. Volatility very rarely drops from really high to really low overnight. That's just very rarely happens. It's the reverse. Volatility goes from very low to very high overnight. That's what kills you. Um, so yeah, it's a very, I like the strategy because it's very, very different. Uh, you know, it's not bean reversion. It's not trend following. It's, you know, it's a volatile. It's very different, but it's also, it's also for advanced people. You got it. You know, this is one of those you can get burned on because of, you know, of the way the market goes and because of the way these things are structured. So I'm just thinking out loud over here where you talk about Vixie and SVixie. I've not traded those before, but one is long volatility. So I'm thinking the best time to actually be long volatility is when the market is really quiet because markets yes. through long periods of consolidation means that it's kind of like storing potential energy yeah. for like a big move to happen. So I'm thinking probably quiet times is probably one of the better times to buy that one. And I think for the other one, which is profit when volatility kind of taper off probably is going to be when there's a huge volatility in the market and there's fear. That's where you know that things are going to get quiet right in the coming days because you can't be too greed i mean too fearful for a sustained period of time before you know right. the selling pressure just kind of eases off i'm just i'm just thinking out loud here as you were talking about these two products yeah yeah so yeah so what happens is yeah i'm, I'm looking for you know things have gotten really really very fearful and things are start looking like they're turning around that's why i'll get into svixi or times where i just say hey look it's pretty quiet right now this is a good time to be an svixi um yeah because even quiet svixi will do well even during quiet times it doesn't have to have the market going from high volatility to low volatility, but just even kind of steady volatility works well. Um, and like you said, volatility picking up, time to get in, you know, get into Vixie. You know, is it perfect? No, uh, you know, but no strategy is. But you know, it, it's done well the last two years. I'm, I'm, a, I'm worried it's going to have a bad year because it's been on a good little run. So usually it's like, okay, it's 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 due for a bad year. Mentally prepare. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, I think another one. Maybe we can talk about another one. We have one called the market surfer. Seems very simple to understand because there's only two markets: bonds and the S and P, right? Right. I, yeah. Uh, so this is this is an interesting one. Um. So this one, yeah, this is basically bond. Well, this one originally started when I first put it out. Uh, when I first put it out on the site as a, you know, SPY and TLT stock market or TLT, and basically. You know, the idea was trying to cut uh, all the up moves, and and, uh, and then when things kind of get bad in the markets, go to TLT. Um, what happened was we were very interesting here. So I put this out there, and a concern I had when I, even when I put it out there, um, you know, when I kind of published it to uh, to Tranquility Trading, something I mentioned is like, look, we've been dealing with you know at the at the time when I put it out there, we've been dealing in a bull market in bonds, you know, since 1982. We've not had a bear market in bonds. You know, I kind of said, look, I don't know what's going to happen in a bear market of bonds. So one of the members of the site kind of emailed me and said, hey, look, I think we really, he, he kind of gave me an idea of saying, maybe there's a way you can do this to kind of, if bonds are, you know, kind of looking at to see if bonds are doing badly. And instead of doing going to bonds, going to cash. Because originally, the original system was in either SPY or TLT. You want one or the other. So it was actually perfectly well-timed for when the bond market, you know. So I really love this variation that he gave. Um, you know, the results were a little bit worse. But conceptually, I really liked it because it took care of the idea of, I don't know when a bond bear market is coming, but I know one is coming eventually. I didn't know how soon, how soon it was going to be. But so this was really nice and conceptually, I really like this idea. When the bond bear market happened, we moved into cash. 
uh, because you know TLT was getting crushed, SPY was getting crushed because in 2022 both of them were losing money. Yeah. You know, so in 2022 the strategy didn't make much loss. I don't remember how much loss, maybe five percent or so. But it was it to me it was good. To me, one of the lessons learned from that was you know understanding what the limitations of your backtest is. And you know this limit the original backtest limitation was we didn't account for eventual bear market and box. And having this member of my site kind of say, hey, look, really pushing it and saying, coming up with some ideas on how to deal with that was really good and made a much better strategy. I still have the other versions on there for people who are much more aggressive and you know think, okay, yeah, because especially now, now that we've now that bond prices have come, you know, interest rates are much higher, you know, we're not likely going to have a bear bond market at, you know, in the near time in the near future. Um, so, you know, maybe some people are going to the other ones a little bit more aggressive. So that make all a little sense to you? Yep, it does. I'm also curious, like, you know, because you're either in cash, bonds, or S&P, I'm thinking the average annual return is in double digits. Right? So how does that come about since, like, the buy annual on the S&P is, like, I think, single well, digits? Uh, right? Well, yeah, remember, that comes about from two ways. Um, one way is um, you make money when the market goes down, if you're in TLT. All oh, right, right, yeah. Right, and the other way is if you're, Making money on TLT, you're not losing on the spy. So it's kind of like you get a little bit of both. Kind of. um, so, yeah, so that's how you kind of manage to do better than the market itself. Is, you know, part of the trick sometimes is, you know, they say market timing is hard and it is really hard. But if you, kind of, if you can get it halfway right, you can really improve your results, both either drawdowns or returns. You know, uh, for me, it's usually drawdowns I'm trying to avoid. Um, okay, awesome. So, yeah, this is a fun one. So, I mean, you've been training for like over 20 plus years. So what are some strategies that you have used in the past that no longer works? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that's a, lots and lots of strategies. So there's, there's been definitely multiple mean reversion strategies that have come and gone. Um, a lot of that were what I would call uh, Larry Carlin strategies that were published, you know, and just eventually those that just, just disappeared. Just because, you know, I was trading them as we published and, then, you know, too many, I believe too many people got around to seeing the rules and trading those. Um, that That's definitely a strategy. It's disappeared. I've had a strategy. Um, God, when was this? 20, early 2010s that was dependent on um, some Fed, uh, some Fed data. And that one went away mostly because the Fed stopped publishing the data I needed. Uh, so that kind of, that's one way, that's what another strategy is kind of kind of way. That was a data issue kind of thing. A recent strategy, I, well, a recent strategy I form, finally formally killed, even though I haven't traded it for two years, is I had a strategy that was trading S&P 500 stocks, kind of a breakout-ish strategy. And it just stopped working for the last two years. And I finally decided um, it was not because I hadn't been working for the last two years. I kind of killed it out of my trading stable. Um, and this is, um, you haven't asked the question that everybody always eventually asks is how do you know when to stop trading a strategy? And this kind of segues to this in a sense of, so I, as I mentioned earlier, I have about 10 strategies that every quarter I kind of evaluate and trade the five best ones. Um, what that naturally does, if a strategy is doing poorly, it's not going to make the five best. So, so this is my way of figuring out when a strategy dies. So this strategy that I just recently killed had not made it into my five best for two years. And the results sucked over the last, no, they were kind of flattish over the last two years. 
But that, because it hadn't been aided in the top five, told me it just was not doing well. And just looking over the past results, looking at the marketing conditions that thinking it should have done well, I decided I'm going to kill it. But I was able to kill it without getting hurt by having it in my trading stable. Does that make sense? Yes. So this so, brings, yeah. Yeah. So a lot, because often people say, when do you know when to stop trading strategy? And, you know, the problem is you don't know until a year or two or three years after it stopped working that it's actually gone bad. Nobody wants to trade a strategy for three years that's going bad. So my, by having in my trading stable and rotating through the best strategies, I naturally don't, I didn't naturally didn't trade this strategy for two years. And I was able to see two years, you know, I can see through two years of, of return, back test returns going, yeah, it didn't do well. I understand why it didn't do well. It did market, the markets were doing well. It should have done well, but it didn't. So the edges disappeared, but I didn't get hurt by having to trade it for those two years because it didn't make the top five. That's a very new concept that I've just learned from you, right? You know, basically having a stable of strategies and then just picking the top yeah. few ones and not even getting affected by the ones that have stopped working because of, you know, ones that are working always at the top ranking. Right. So, I'm, it, it, yeah. It, the way I came up with this or the way I kind of came up with this and perfected it is I had this concept of, oh, okay, maybe rotating strategies. And I said, well, can it help me? Can it help me? get out of a bad strategy. So I created a strategy that purposely lost money. I mean, this strategy goes broke. I mean, so it was really easy to make, you know, it's easy to make strategies that lose money. So I made a strategy that purposely lost money almost, you know, every year lost money, lost money, lost money. And then I put it into my stable. You know, I back tested it with my stable. It's like, okay, just putting this strategy that I know loses money year after year after year, you know, and yeah, there were months every now and then where it would pop up and make money. So I was like, okay, here's a strategy that just conceptually just sucks. I put it, I tested it, and pretty consistently, it would just never would show up. And a couple of times it did show up because, yeah, oh, it had three months where it got lucky and made some money and showed up in the top five. But then, yeah, I traded for three months, it would lose money, and then I rotate out. So that kind of showed me that I can put a, purposely put it in a strategy that sucks. But when I put it into my whole stable, it only minimally impacted the total return. You know, yes, did it bring him down a little bit? Yes, it did, because I put something that I know is bad. But it did not, like, destroy everything. It, it, it did exactly what it was gonna, I wanted it to do. So that, that's kind of how I verified that, that this concept that I had worked. Yeah, it's the first time I actually heard this concept. And, wow, I think we have some work to do with you after the call. <laughs> so are we able to then, like, let's say I have, like, uh, for example, 10 strategies. And am I able to, like, let's say if I take the top three every year or every quarter and I kind of like backtest with between the top three and the top five. Can I see the difference in the performance? Yeah. It's yeah, doable? I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, you will definitely see a difference in performance. I mean, you have to come up with your own ranking method. I mean, yeah. my ranking method is pretty simple. I mean, it's not a complex ranking method. It's, I think I'm just looking at two time frames and saying, okay, how take look at these two time frames and, you know, compare them all and just rank by that. That's kind of is a very simple ranking method of my strategies. And then, yeah, I mean, anybody doing this, I would say, you know, if you can get up. And I actually have one of my strategies is really a brain dead strategy. It's just a follow the, it's just a 200 day um, moving average on the spy. Because I figured if my strategies can't beat that, then that should be in there, you know. Um, and I think also one is just, um, one is just cash. I, you know, I, those aren't official, I wouldn't call them, well, the cash isn't an official strategy, but it's an unofficial, like 11th added in there just as a kind of extra buffer. It's like, okay, if things are really bad, um, 
I just want to know if it's you know, that puts it in there. But you know, anybody else, if you're doing this, you know, if you have a, if you got to the point where you've got lots of strategies, this is a good way of trying to focus on a, on a smaller set. And, and for me, it's a really good way of dealing with understanding when a strategy is died. I mean, mm. um, and this also, you know, I this also lets you get away slightly with, um, you know, strategies that are similar-ish. Um, but yeah, this is, I've, I found this has been really good um, for me. Uh, now, is it better? Would you be better off on the back-tested results trading, you know, my entire 10? Yes. Uh, I will definitely say yes if I just traded all 10 together on back-tested results to give me better results. But I, I'm willing to give up a little bit of return to now kind of like say, I now don't need to worry about when does a strategy die? Because that to me, that's always one of the hardest questions to answer. And you can't answer that until a couple, you know, unless this is something obvious. I mean, very rarely is it that. I mean, like when my data disappeared, okay, yeah, that strategy is dead. And there's, yeah, that's pretty obvious. Or, um, you know, something critical in your strategy happens, you know. Um, it's not obvious for a couple of years that your strategy is dead. You know, very rarely is it very kind of like, oh, yeah, my strategy, you know, my strategy, you know, because normally it's not that they lose a lot of money, it's they just stop making money, I've discovered. So this kind of like uh, brings me to this question, like let's say you rebalance every quarter, if I hear you correctly, yes. you pick the ones with the strongest momentum. So there will be times, right, where let's say uh, a strategy goes into a drawdown. And I think there's a saying that the best time to trade a system where it's in a drawdown because, you know, if it works, right, it's going to catch up the next up move. So I'm going to assume that you will not be able to enter those strategies which is in a deep drawdown. You only enter it when it's like kind of recovering from the drawdown to prove itself before you get back to those strategies again. Yes. Yeah, because okay. yeah, yeah, I'm looking at, I, like I said, I don't remember the exact things, but I think I'm looking at three and nine month momentum. Okay. Yeah. You, know, you know, how has it done over the last three and nine, three and nine months kind of thing. Um, and yeah, and the thing is, if a strategy is in a drawdown, the problem is we don't, and this is always the question, is the drawdown normal? And is it going to come back? Or is this a drawdown just because the strategy is dying and, got, mm. and is broken? Um, you can't know that. Um, and yes, sometimes the best time to get into a strategy is when it's in a drawdown. Uh, and that's where you kind of end up giving a little bit of a return when I said, you know, it's sometimes better to trade the entire 10 than trading the 5. Um, but again, this is always, this is always trade-offs. Um, and as I've now, as at my age now, I have become a lot less. I'm no longer looking for huge returns. I'm looking for smaller returns, less drawdowns. You know, I don't. You know, I don't need the big. I don't need the big years anymore. I just need consistent years, small drawdowns. You know, to Wealth me, preservation mode. I'm guessing. Yeah, I'm in the preservation. Yes, I'm. I'm not growing. I'm not looking to super grow my portfolio now. I'm looking to preserve it and slowly grow it. And also, I'm thinking uh, when you do this rebalancing, it won't make sense to be using a look back period of like one year or two years right? because that's where things can be, I don't know, like the strategy they have does, does well for the past one year. I don't know, I have this kind of like theory in my head that, you know, it's about to mean revert soon in the future. So, so I don't know, maybe is that a reason why that's why your rebalancing is on a shorter duration, like three months, nine months? I mean, the problem is, if you, I mean, I don't want it too long because if I have it too long, then it's going to, it takes a hard time to kick out a strategy that's dying. That's, mm, you, oh, know, yes. that's you know, that's the thing. Um, now, the one thing you got to be careful with something like this, and there is a little bit of discretion involved for me, is strategies that are market dependent. So 
for example, um, I told you, we were talking earlier about the exploding stars. Um, so I have a version that trades both above and below um, the, 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 the 200 day moving average for the market. But that one that I've got published on my site is only for when the market's in a bear market. Okay. So of course, right now it's just sitting in cash. So that one, if I was, if I had that in my trading stable, I would have to do something slightly different because I would like, like, okay, are we in a bear market? Because I, I, that one I might just throw straight in. If we got into a bear market, I would just throw it straight in. If, you know, we got a quarterly rotation. It's like we're in a bear market. It's like, okay, that one automatically gets in. Then I'm taking the next top four kind of thing. Because it's, because it's just the way it is. So you have to be careful with that. If your strategies are really, you know, a market, you know, you know, if you're looking, you know, like, oh, this is only a bull market strategy or this is only a bear market strategy, then you got to be careful on this kind of strategy rotation because it may keep you out of strategy when it should, or not when it shouldn't, but when you, yeah, when you shouldn't, then you should be getting into something. Got it. Because that strategy is meant to shine during bear markets and then right. maybe the ranking has not make it show up yet. <laughs> okay. Right. Yeah. Because, yeah, just imagine, yeah, imagine it's, you know, imagine it's, you know, uh, March 31st and, you know, we've just entered a bear market. And this strategy has been sitting in cash. So of course, it's not done very well. But we're in a bear market. And this is why I know it's going to go. So I, I'd, like I said, I'd automatically throw it to the top. So no, it's a bear market. I'm throwing you in. Um, yeah. So you know, that would be kind of like a semi-discretionary you know, override over that. But you know, um, if you have, it's something to think about if you've got strategies like that. Okay. And what's your thick on trading individual markets versus a portfolio. I think what you do, you trade a portfolio of stocks, right? But there are also some traders like, I think, Kevin Davey, Andre Unger, they trade the individual futures market with specific systems on like these different markets. So what's your take on it? Because both of you are like, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think I personally don't like it. I mean, yeah. First of all, you can make money a whole bunch of different ways. You know, I'm not saying anybody else ways individual markets is, is wrong. Um, I'm just saying, from my personal point of view, I don't like it. Um, it, it the problem I have is, from a testing point of view, it's you got to be really careful about curve fitting. Curve fitting becomes a lot easier. You know, if you're just testing on the spy, you've only got one symbol, so it's really easy to accidentally overfit to that. Um, now, that's my biggest kind of concern about that. I, it it's much easier. You know, person, and this is I'll tell you this. I am always trying to find a like a strategy to trade the, the um, ETFs. Um, the problem I have is I haven't found anything that gets me excited. You know, I, I found strategies that are like are, are okay, but not enough to excite me to trade. Um, and the, the good part about ETF, you know, like trading the spies or trading the spiders, the um, sector ETFs, is they can handle a lot of money. So you know, you can place. Open orders, you can place market orders. You're not going to, you know, for most of us, we're not going to move the market, you know, and they're tiny spreads. So, yes, I mean, I could definitely see, you know, if I was trading a larger, large, large account, I would definitely be focusing, trying to focus more on those markets because, like I said, they can handle the, that, that amount of money. Um, but, uh, like I said, I've not been able, I have not been able to find anything there that makes me excited that, doesn't make me think I would maybe overfit the strategy. Um, I'm always looking though. That's definitely one of my areas where I always go back to. It's like, I gotta find something, just trading the spy. Or tra Actually for me, it's usually the sector ETFs. I wanna find something on the sector ETFs that makes me excited, but I can never can never get anything. And anytime I do, I, I feel like I've overfit the data. So I end up throwing it away and like, okay, I'll come back in another month or two and try again. 
How do you know you have overfitted the data? It's um, part of it is a gut feel. Part of it is um, what I would call parameter sensitivity. So making small changes in parameters and seeing how how much the results change. Um, so that to me is that, and then also out of sample. I mean, if I can, you know, I usually try to leave data for out of sample testing to see how that works. So those those three things, um, you know, my gut, uh, out of sample testing, and parameter sensitivity testing kind of will help me kind of give me an idea whether I'm overfit or not. Um, All right. So the next one I have is uh, if a trading strategy, let's say it works on the Russell 1000, the large caps, but it doesn't work on, let's say, the Russell 2000, right? So what's your, would you trade such strategies still? Yeah. So it, it depends on your definition if it doesn't work. So the answer is, if it just, the edge is not as big, you know, it doesn't work as well as strong, then yes, that, that to me, it doesn't bother me. I don't expect, I don't expect strategies that work really well on one index to work really well on some other index. Though I generally do expect them to still work. Um, you know, and sometimes I'll look to understand why. Sometimes it may be, oh, it works. The edge is the same amount, but there's just, like, if you went from, let's say, SP 500 to um, Dow Jones, you know, the Dow Jones 30, there's just only 30 stocks. So you may, the edge may be exactly the same. You may be making the same amount per trade, but you're just getting so many fewer trades that you can't, that the overall doesn't, you know, the overall portfolio isn't making that much money. Or sometimes it could be, you go from NASDAQ 100 stocks to S&P 100 stocks. Well, the NASDAQ 100 stocks are just so much more volatile that, yes, the S&P 100 stocks aren't going to make as much money just because the volatility isn't there. Um, so it's a matter of understanding why. But now, if I did something on the NASDAQ 100 and it made money and I tested on the S&P 100 and it lost money, now I'm concerned. Now, that's a bad, bad, that's a bad time. Um, so, yeah, it's a matter of understanding, you know, what universe you went for, you know, you tested onto the new universe understanding the differences in them and saying, okay, why, why is this difference there? Is it to be expected? You know, often it can be come down to liquidity um, or volatility of the stocks or the number of the size of the universe. Those tend to be the common things of why you will see the differences. But like I said, if you see makes money in one, loses money in the other, bad sign, run away. Hmm. What if like, like earlier you're comparing like, stocks of similar market cap, but what if like, let's say the S&P 100 and then with Russell 2000, I mean, and then Russell 2000 loses money. So the reason now could be because the age works in large cap stock, but not in small cap stock. Yeah, yeah. That, is, that becomes interesting. Yeah, the hard part about that is it's really easy for us to justify and make up stories afterwards on why something is. Um, you know, if I were to see something like that, um, I would probably then say, okay, Try putting a very, you know, it's like, okay, it's losing money on the Russell 2000. Let me try the most liquid stocks in the Russell 2000. Yes, yeah, so still, still, do I see, do I see better results? Maybe I'm losing less money. So maybe it is a liquidity thing kind of thing. Maybe it's just whatever you've discovered is better on the bigger cap stocks. You know, I would look, okay, is it a liquidity issue? That's how I would kind of segment it and see if that, see. that made the difference. Um, I see you. Okay. So yeah, our next question was to actually ask you what are some of the things to look for to see if a strategy is broken, but you shared with me that concept earlier. I think we can skip ah, this I knew part, that right? question <laughs> was going to be coming up every day. That's the most popular question I ever get. 
<laughs> I, I heard, I think once on, on Better Systems Trader Podcast, you said that there's like a three, four hour conversation, right? Just to talk about, you know, death topics. Well, I, I have a much better answer nowadays now. I used to just say, I, I have no good answer. Now I have, at least I have an answer that makes me happy. Let me just put it to you that way. Um, I'm happy with the way I'm now dealing with it. Uh, probably not the answer most people want to hear because most people don't have 10 strategies to be trading. Uh, you know, they're only trading one or two and then that's, yeah, I mean, if you're only trading one or two strategies and you ask me, okay, how do I know when my strategy is broken? <sighs> you know, the thing is, you know, some people say, well, it, maybe it's broken if it's gone into a bigger drawdown. And the problem is the biggest drawdown is always the next one coming. You know, the biggest drawdown is always in the future. Um, it's just statistically, that's just how it works is there always will be a bigger drawdown in the future than your backtested results. Um, if you're going to say, you know, I got a bigger drawdown there for my system's broken. Well, no, not necessarily so. Um, so you can't use that. I mean, what I would tell people generally, if you're like got one system, you want to know, is it broken? Is and this is kind of what I, I did before is I would love, okay, understand what market conditions it should make money. Okay. You know, is it good when markets are going up and volatile or maybe up and quietly or, you know, what kind of market does your strategy do well? Have we had that kind of market recently? Did it not do well then? If it didn't do well, then that's a bad sign. You know, let's say your strategy does really well on markets that are highly volatile and going up. And we, you know, we just went through a high, you know, three months of high volatility moving up and your, your strategy lost money. Bad sign. Now, you know, the problem is often the market that our strategy does well may not be what's happening right now. And then, then it becomes, okay, is it, is the market conditions the causing the problem or is it the strategy itself causing the problem? And that's where the, you know, it gets a little bit hard. But I try to look how to look and you need, I hate to say this, you need six months, a year's worth of strategy performance before I can even consider thinking it's broken. You know, unless it just falls off the cliff and, you know, just like suddenly just starts losing money left and right. Okay. Yeah. That's, you know, that's the rare obvious sign. Um, you, you need to give it six months to a year of time frame because that gives you long enough to see hopefully enough trades, go through hopefully the market conditions that you expect it to make money in and kind of evaluate it in. That I don't know. That, I don't have what I would consider a good answer. I've never had a good answer that I've been happy with. If you, know, if you just came to me with one strategy and said, hey, I think my, mar my strategy is broken. Can you tell me if it's broken? You know, unless I, unless I looked at your, your back testing and said, oh yeah, you overfit your data. That's why it's broken. Um, you know, that's the easy answer. Uh, but, you know, assuming you haven't done anything bad, you know, you need six months to a year and then you kind of kind of look at it and say, you know, how is it performing compared to what I expect it to perform? All right. So maybe now let's talk about ranking factors. I think earlier in the conversation, we talked about ranking factors. So I think uh, maybe for the audience to let them know what are ranking factors for, because sometimes we have too many stocks to buy. We need certain ranking factors to choose which stocks to buy. I think popular one, I think, is the rate of change, right? You know, buy the right. strongest performance stocks, blah, blah, blah. So what, type of strategies, you know, work well for, you know, certain ranking factors because there are many ways to. So, yeah. So, um, for mean reversion, anything I've discovered, anything volatility based. So historical volatility, ATR, you want the higher, you want the higher volatile stocks for mean reversion. Um, that, that I've definitely discovered. Um, for trend following, I tend to, actually, it's the reverse. You want the low volatility stocks. Or you want, um, if you're going to also, you can also rank by uh, rate of, you know, rate of change. So how has, how has the stock performed over the last 
three months, six months, nine months. Sometimes you can just do one of those. Sometimes people combine all three. You know, I've seen you know lots of different ways of combining multiple time frames. So that tends to be very popular and very useful for um, trend following and also for breakout. Breakouts, um, breakouts tend to do well for me for high volatility stocks, ranking high volatility stocks. So you know, and also um, rate of change. So those tend to be my my go-to ranking methods. So when I've got too many signals, you know, you know, yeah, I've got twenty signals, but I can only take three. You know, if it's mean reversion, I'm looking for high volatility. You know, whether it's historical volatility or ATR or any other way of measuring volatility that you like, that's the way to go. Um, and then with uh, back again with trend following, low volatility. I find low volatility works really well. Um, it tends to have good returns and really reduces the um, drawdowns a lot too. Uh, and then yeah, so th- yeah, those are the, those are the, my favorite ranking methods and the reasons why I kind of like those. So for breakup, would that be looking for high volatility or low volatility for breakup? Um, I tend to like the high volatility on that one. But something, you know, actually I just wrote about this on uh, my private um, trading group. <laughs> actually, just this is this exact thing is testing both in the sense of sometimes testing what you think won't work. It's like, okay, oh, you know, high volatility seems to work. Well, let me just test low volatility. Because one of two things are going to happen, or one of three things can happen. Okay, let's say let's say you got a strategy, you're testing high volatility ranking, and it's working, and it looks great. And you think, oh yeah, volatility ranking works great. You know, I'm ranking my highest, I got great results. Now you say, okay, let me just test low volatility. So one of three things can happen. You rank by volatil- low volatility, and the results go down a lot. Okay, well that did exactly what you expected, right? Because well, if I'm ranking by highest, and if I go to lowest, I should expect my results to go a lot. Great, that works great. Second thing that can happen is nothing changes. And this has happened to me. It's like, wait a second, nothing changed. That's telling you your ranking method is not doing anything. So that means you should look for a better ranking method. So, oh, I'm sorry, there's only two ways. So that's sometimes doing the opposite or trying something opposite and seeing what happens can be very instructive. And it is instructive, on the, especially on the ranking side, because it can definitely tell you whether you've picked a good ranking variable, because if, you know, like I said, one of two things, either you get exactly what you expect and the results get worse or nothing changes. And that tells you your ranking variable is not very good and you should go find something. You should find something else to rank. All right. And earlier you mentioned that for breakout, you're looking for low volatility and then trend following is for high volatility. So no, I'm, I'm other way around. Curious. Other way around. Oh, yeah. Trend oh, following, low volatility, volat- breakout, high volatility. Right. Okay. Okay. I, I was thinking that these two are very kind of like similar strategies, but their ranking method is actually the inverse, right? Yeah. Okay. So yeah. Okay. Here's another one. Right. What are some things, right, that you that traders think are true, but it's actually false? So so, what's your take on that? For example, popular is you know the risk to reward if you must have a minimum of a one to two risk reward ratio, but by now, right, with data, you know that's not true. Right. So, I guess uh, <laughs> one is you always have to have stops. Um, oh yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, that, that yeah, that one is actually. I think Larry and I wrote a book. Did we write a book on this? I think Larry and I either wrote a book or something about the seven seven things people think are true that aren't true. And that was oh, you have a book. I, I have to, now you, I we wrote, a, we wrote something about this. I don't see a book up there. So all right. So one would be stops. One is um, another one is over believing that 
complicated position sizing is the solution. Um, I see so many people come with me, clients come to me to test things that have very complicated positions, or not very complicated, have the, you know, the standard complicated position sizing. Kelly formula, fixed rate, uh, you know, um, whatever. I mean, just these different ways of doing position sizing and not understanding that just the simple equal position sizing works so well. I mean, that's another one of those things. Uh, another one, no, my favorite is thinking that uh, being a systematic trader or a quant trader means there's no emotions in trading. That all emotions are dealt with it. You don't have to deal with them anymore. Uh, that, that's just the biggest lie there is. <laughs> um, what else? Um, what else is, you know, it's, trading is not about the money. If you're trading for money, you're trading for the wrong reason and you're going to eventually lose. You're not going to, you're not going to make it in the long term. I, to me, I think you got to view trading as a puzzle, as work. You know, the money is, a, you know, yes. Do I want to make money? Do we all want to make money? Yes. But if that's your main focus. I think you're, you're, you're set to failure. Um, so I, I mean, it's not really a, I don't know. This is a tough question you gave me here, Rainer. <laughs> No uh, pressure. <laughs> okay. uh, that's that's all. It comes off the top of my head. Okay, sounds good. And uh, yes, I, okay. This is another one. I'm just kind of like a yes no answer because I was just thinking out loud. So have you ever thought of you know because this is something on crypto that I noticed that you know the crypto market is still quite nascent, quite new. That usually, right? I think what I've noticed is that when the overall crypto market, like let's say Bitcoin goes down 1-2%, right? And you manage to find certain coins or tokens that didn't go down, maybe up 3 or 4% for the day, right? Those are usually the stronger coins that will likely outperform the market, at least in the short term. So I'm thinking, have you done anything similar for the stock market where the market, overall market is down, but then there are certain stocks that just didn't go down, but maybe just, you know, up for the day. And then maybe, you know, huh. happened, yeah. No, I have I mean? not. And you know what? I'll put that on my list of research right here. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So it's basically a, a relative strength concept, but you know, I was just taking it from the crypto markets and kind of like, yeah, bring it over to the stock market. Oh, I, I like that idea. I put it on my infinitely sized uh, research list. <laughs> okay. Hopefully it's at the, at the top of the priority. <laughs> All right. So, okay, now let's move on to the closing section. As, pro as mentioned, right, close, close to two hours, almost two hours now. So, yeah, so anything that you changed your mind on recently doesn't have to be trading. <laughs> doesn't have to be trading. Yeah. Um, now, let me think. I got to think about what I've changed on my mind recently on trading. Um, what's been recent on trading? I got to think how far back do I have to go? I'm looking at something here. Um, I'm sure there's I'm always changing. I'm always learning new stuff trading, but I'm going to try to think, what have I changed my mind on? Um, I don't want to say, I mean, I think change your mind is good. And there's lots of other things I could tell you that I've changed my mind on. But uh, not trading-wise, nothing pop. God, I know. If... Oh, this okay, trading-wise there. What? Can be trading then. Can be trading. Can be trading. Sorry, what did you say? It can be related to trading or non-related to trading. Well, you I'm, have find, I'm trying to think of a trading one that, I, okay. I, that I've changed my mind on. Nah, I mean, there's, I keep reinforcing. I mean, I mean, a lot of this, I mean, a lot of what we've discussed, I've just, I guess learn through the years. I'm going to say you've changed my mind, but there's just been so many things I've learned. Um, you know, but you know, like I said, I've, I've nothing. I've I, nothing. I'm, unfortunately, I can't think of anything, and I think that's bad. I don't know. Hopefully, I have changed my mind on something <laughs> trading wise. Um, but um, 
No yeah, worries about it. Let's yeah, have another other one. Stuff, yeah, other personal stuff I've definitely changed my mind on, but I'd rather not go into. It's just it's personal stuff. Uh, <laughs> okay. But yeah, there's other personal health-related stuff that I've definitely made changes on. Uh, big, big mind changes on. And, and I recall, right, the last time we spoke, you were into, was it jujitsu? Are you still yes, doing it? jiu-jitsu, yes. I know I'm still doing that. Um, been doing that for uh, 13 years or now or so. Um, yeah, I should have asked this at the start, but what made you got started in this sport? Uh, so I started, actually, I started training general martial arts in 1997. Um, the school I started at was doing uh, Jeet Kune Do and um, Muay Thai and a little bit of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu at the time. So um, he, was, he was kind of teaching multiple things. And then the school through the years slowly started doing more Jiu-Jitsu and then 2010 or so went to all Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. So, um, so I've been at the same school since uh, 1997, but it, we've been just doing jiu-jitsu for the last 13 years um and those for those of you know a lot of people know brazilian jiu-jitsu because the ufc uh and gracie's doing all that so yes um yeah there i'm always changing my mind learning new things uh. <laughs> <laughs> and how does your tendonitis you know comes into play when you're doing jiu-jitsu does it affect you? uh yes um I, i've actually uh i've actually have a flare-up that's happening right now because of that um and the way it affects it, and actually, it's a good thing, bad thing. It forces me to change what I do. So um, for those of you who are familiar with jiu-jitsu, I really like doing chokes. And I really like using collar chokes. Uh, that requires very strong grips. And um, between, I just overdid some exercising and kind of inflamed that. So that, uh, that pushed my game um, in a different direction. So now I've just been doing more leg locks. And... Um, and now I'm actually going to go back to chokes, a different type of chokes that don't require collars so I can go back into choking. Because My two main attacks are either choking somebody out or breaking their feet. So that's how I, uh, <laughs> that's, that, that's my thing. But yes, um, but yeah, jiu-jitsu is great because it's, it's always learning. You're always being pushed. You're always learning. Um, it's physically demanding. I, and I'm a small guy, so that makes it even more challenging. So. <laughs> I'm glad I'm your friend, right? So I don't have anyone, you know, coming to break my legs. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, speaking of which, right, when you said when you work at your desk for long hours and that's where the tendonitis flare up, is it because I'm, I'm guessing the, the elbow is resting on the table? That's why it is I don't know what, I mean, I don't know if it was the resting or the just the long hour. I mean, because it doesn't happen as much nowadays. I mean, it seemed mm. to be very common back then. Uh, I don't know if we just learned better to take some rest or what. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. But now, you know, for now, it's usually, when it flares up for me, it's usually, you know, I'm exercising either too hard or doing jujitsu or gripping too hard at jujitsu. Usually it's a combination of two things. Usually if I do two things too hard at the same time, and that's what happened this time. I was, I was working on my pull-ups, my pull-ups too hard, and I was working on my chokes too much, and doing both things too much kind of made my elbows mad at me. So. <laughs> All right. And what are the projects that you are working on right now? Um, I am always researching new trading strategies. Um, I have one of my strategies right now that I'm looking at is an S&P 500 breakout strategy um, that I'm looking into. So that's, uh, that's always kind of the, the, I'm always doing research. I'm always trying to find new strategies. I believe strategies will eventually, I believe the strategies I'm trading will eventually, their edges will die. I believe they will die, whether it's 
tomorrow, a year from now, or five years from now, they will die. You know, like you asked earlier, you know, you know, what strategies am I not trading? I'm, there are a lot more that I couldn't remember that I've stopped trading uh, for various reasons, you know, because they just stopped working. And so therefore, I'm always looking for something new. I am, you know, you just gave me another idea to try. I got this S&P 500. I'm always looking for, I'm always trying, like I said, the um, index uh, or the, uh, the sector ETFs. I'm always looking for the sector ETF strategy. Uh, so yeah, to me, that's, hey, I just love doing research. Uh, I love doing research. I love coding. And, you know, that to me is for, you know, trading to me is boring. <laughs> and it should be boring at the end of the day. Um, it's the research that I enjoy, the coding up the strategies, testing the strategies, breaking the strategies, trying to figure out what I did wrong. That's, that's what I enjoy. And that's what I do. Um, like I said, putting in the orders, you know, after we get done with this call, I'm going to have to put in my orders for the next day. Yeah, that's boring. Five minutes later, I'll be done. So when you say like strategies stop working, would you refer to it maybe conceptually? Like earlier we talked about mean reversion, you know, it stopped working. Would it be conceptually or maybe more towards the tactical exact parameters happen to stop working? Uh, more of the, it's two things. More of the exact parameters stop working, but I do not, I do not go back and like re-optimize and find new parameters to make it working. Because I, fig- I figured that general areas probably broke or either broken or the edges disappeared. And also edges have been getting smaller and smaller and smaller through the years. Um, so, you know, that's also another thing. It's not necessarily broken, but I think there will be a time sometime in the future, at least for me, where it's not worth my time to trade just because I'm not, for that time, it takes me to trade and the commissions and all that. Yeah, I can just put it in the market and, you know, do a simple 200-day moving average following, trend following or whatever, or something strategy be a lot easier than what I'm doing now, just because the edges, the edges are definitely getting smaller. I think we're, you know, a lot of my edge now, or the lot of the edge I'm looking for is reducing of, of drawdowns. You know, I'm not looking for the big gains, but I'm looking to reduce, reduce the drawdowns. So that's where a lot of my focus is for my personal trading. It's like, okay, how can I reduce drawdowns? What are your thoughts on, you know, as you see, like the edge gets smaller and smaller and smaller. Then maybe reach a point where it's so small, nobody trades it, and it gets larger and larger and larger. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it might be, yes. It might, we might get to, but I, I don't think so. I think, you know, there always will be people wanting to trade, you know, and there's always, you know, crazy bull markets will always pop up and that'll always, you know, get lots of people interested in the markets and wanting to trade again. Um, you know, I'm definitely seeing an uptick after last year's very strong market an uptick in the number of people who are interested in the markets. Hmm. So is there anything else that you wish to add that, you know, that I didn't cover in today's, today's show? I don't know. We covered a lot in two hours. I was wondering what we were going to talk about in two hours. You definitely surprised me uh, on the whole one we decided to start with. But no, I think this was great. And again, I was really honored to be here with talking to you and your listeners. And hopefully, um, you know, I conveyed something that will teach people, some, you know, even one little nugget. Definitely. Uh, you know, I, I learned happy. a ton. I learned a ton, right, just by speaking with you for the last, you know, two hours. And where can the audience find you and connect with you, right? Yes. So uh, I've got two websites. You know, um, I've got alvarezquanttrading.com. Uh, That's where I write. I will write a blog there. I, you know, maybe every month or two, I'll do some sort of research thing that I'll write there. If you're getting into trading, especially mean reversion trading, or just want to understand trading, that's a great place to start. I've been writing the blog for 10 years now. There is tons and tons of content there. Um, also, if you're an AMI broker person, I've got information there on AMI broker that you can get there. And then there's my uh, tranquillitytrading.com. That's my um, both where I 
give signals and also my private trading groups. My private trading group, we've got forums and people can talk and ask questions. So this is a good place for, you know, if you're trying to learn some stuff, you know, trying to figure things out. So those are the two places. Both places have contact me. I answer all emails. Um, so if you, you send a contact me, I'll answer it within 24 hours. I love talking to other traders. You got questions, some general questions, or, you know, anything like that. I, uh, I love talking trading. It's, you know, Rainer and I have gone for two hours. I'm probably, we probably could have gone for another two. <laughs> asking those questions. But it's getting awesome. late for me here. Yeah. I'll put all your links and stuff that you mentioned in the description below the show. So for those who are interested, the link will be somewhere below there. You guys can access it. And you know, before you go, Cesar, just want to say a huge thank you once again for your time, for your generosity, right? I've learned a ton, right, from this time speaking with you. So I appreciate it. And thank you, right, for being the guy who's always, you know, taking my ideas and you know, testing it, writing up the code for me on Army Broker. So I get, you know, an easier life, right? So thank you so much <laughs> once again, Cesar. Right, thank you, Rainer. Awesome. Thank you. We appreciate you joining us in this session of Trading with Rainer Show. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And visit tradingwithrainer.com for more resources related to today's session. That's tradingwithrainer.com. Until next time, good luck and good trading.